Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality Analysis podcast. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Brian Deacon. Hi, everybody. Hey, Brian. What did you think of chapters 84 and 85? Uh, I liked them. It was as I was going back through a second time to kind of get ready for this. I'm really, so I really liked it. And I probably liked 85. I like the second one. Is that 85 this week? Um, even better, but looking at it again, it's all it's it's pretty navel gazy. So I don't know how it'll I don't know how it'll talk out between us, but I like it quite a bit. It's pretty what? Uh, navel gazy. You're gonna have to tell me what that means. Navel is, uh, uh, introspective. Okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of just things Harry staring at the sky and thinking. Oh yeah. So, okay. So and he and it actually says like quite a bit. It was kind of interesting, but it. it it's not very like plot oriented, so I'll be, we'll, we'll see how that works with us just trying to talk about it. But never heard navel gazing before, navel but I like it. Gaz- gazing at your navel. Yeah, I mean, I, like I when you explained yeah. it, then it made sense. But I oh, never heard that before. Slaughtering it. Yeah. So maybe it's because I also just don't do that because my neck gets sore if I point it straight down. So that's true. It's more of a metaphor. <laughs> oh yeah, that thing where you say one thing but you, you're saying something else. You know, like lying. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, we'll continue on our very not segway entry here. I'm going to just preface by saying I'm very tired today, so I'm going to do my best to keep my shit together. And we recorded, uh, Scott and I had a very fun two-hour conversation about Last of Us 2. Uh, We recorded that this weekend, so that should be out definitely by the time this is out. So if you are interested, do check out the uh, patron-exclusive podcast feed for Doof. Um, don't listen to this if you haven't played the game and there's the remotest chance you will because it is an experience that the shock of it plays a, like a huge proportion of how awesome it is. It's still great, but like if you if you knew it going in, then you you lose a lot of the oomph, I guess. Oomph. Yeah. I was trying to find a word that, you know, fit and that works. Um, so I just have to wait until never for it to come out on Xbox? Or just buckle and buy a PlayStation Guess so. I yeah, I mean, if you want to play uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, which I was pitching to a friend this week, and I told him that it it's the one where I think it came out in 2017. It would have won Game of the Year if it didn't come out the same week as Breath of the Wild. But it was, uh, like, the premise, you see the protagonist shooting robot T-Rexes with a bow and arrow. And the best thing about this is that it delivers an awesomely satisfying explanation for why that's the case. Nice. And it's just fun to play, too, which is always a perk. And, yeah, other than... Oh, um, reminder, I'll try and remember one for the bottom of the show, too. But at the top, don't forget that the fan art contest is alive and well. Um, Everyone submit all your stuff to steven at doofmedia.com or click the link in the show notes and read all the rules, and it'll have the email address to send stuff to there. So that's pretty exciting. Someone asked what you looked little... like on Discord, then I had to submit a picture of myself because your description wasn't very accurate. So but I don't look that like was kind of cringy. I never knew I looked like John Malkovich. Just people kept telling me so. Yeah, I don't look like a celebrity. They just they don't put faces like this on TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So digression city aside, which stayed so, somewhat relevant, we are. You want to jump into eighty four? Let's let's do it. So, uh, so yeah, we, we enter with Hermione waking up in Madame Pomfrey's. I, you know, it's, I think we should try a new thing, which is just sort of like say, this is all the stuff that happened in about like five sentences. So then we at least know what it was that we planned on talking about. 
So you know, there's like one, an empty section at the top of our notes where I used to try and do that in like one sentence and we just never got around to doing it right. So, oh, well. yeah, high, so, high right, strokes, what happens to so, 84? Heil, 84, Hermione wakes up, talks to Dumbledore. She feels really bad about everything that's going on. Then we cut to, we get a little bit of backstory from McGonagall about how Harry wants Hermione out of there because Harry's really concerned about her. Then we cut to some crazy ass shit with Quirrell and Amelia Bones uh, because Quirrell got detained for questioning. Uh, we get a, a good bit of a, a backstory about Quirrell. Um, and then that's kind of it for a plot for the for 84 yeah and oh yeah and then just that the uh that all of hogwarts thinks that hermione's a murderer <clears throat> and then 85 is a lot of harry thinking um and thinking about what it what it was he should be doing for hermione and um just sort of ethics and heroing in general um and then i guess it's it's almost like spoiler for the episode and then harry has a big scene um where a new, it was a new phoenix, right? It wasn't Fox. A new phoenix uh, that Harry could have taken to go destroy Azkaban, and he chooses not to, and that's uh, and he regrets that much. Um, so yeah, that, that is thing. if you were putting works. this on a on a book jacket, what you would say. I like that. There you go. Yeah, and then we so can do the dive in. So, so so we we start out in in Madame Pomfrey's. Uh, Hermione wakes up. This is kind of our first. Um, our first like look at Hermione since she since all this happened really. This is our first and, time in her head since her head, the yeah. I think I think since before the battle, like that she beat Draco in and then he subs- yeah. then he sent her, then he challenged her to the duel. Yeah, and I guess and we oh, have Oh, this is really, the first time we've been in her head since she met Sith since Kermit. Since Sith Kermit, yeah. And that's yeah. yeah, I was thinking like and <clears throat> and she has not been herself ever since then. And we kinda didn't know when that happened that she was gonna be off. And I think and at first the way that she was kind of off wasn't like super obvious, but so we haven't really had like a coherent Hermione in many chapters. Um, and she's not really, she's slightly back. She's not really coherent yet either. I think she's kind of, it feels like she's kind of more back to herself, but she's just so like just beat up mentally and emotionally um, and guilt, feeling guilty about everything that's happened that she's still not herself. Um, I like still, that. Uh, I think that one of the descriptions the author gave was that, like it felt like her brain was bruised. Yeah, and that's a a good description that yeah. paints the picture really well. Yeah, and it's kind of it's a bummer that like we we haven't gotten like back and almost like starting to wonder like oh is like that Hermione ever coming back? Um, of because she's just been so like gone in multiple senses of that word, um, and she's still yeah she's still like thoroughly fucked up so we're not she's not a like sort of a source of wisdom about anything yet um so far she's still she's just all messed up yeah this is i think it's this is the afternoon after they bring her back from uh what do you call it the wisdom trial yeah so yeah she's she's gonna be stretched pretty thin jacked up although yeah what we i know and then but from yeah, from the last chapter though, we know that like as fucked up as she is in these scenes, that she's going to be back in class the next day. So, take some pet pills for Miami. Yeah, they uh, <laughs> they don't pull their punches with I guess the yeah. Hogwarts administration. Yeah. So Hermione wakes up and she's uh, sort of very natural for a twelve year old girl. She says like, "Well, where are my parents?" And we're, and that's when we get the reminder that no, this is fucking Hogwarts people. Um, so McGonagall tries to very 
calmly and nicely explain to Hermione that like, yeah, muggles just don't get it. So we haven't told your parents that you were nearly like sent to torture prison. Yeah. If we told them that you were sent to torture prison to have your soul eaten, uh, you know, they they might overreact and take you out of school. So (laughs) (laughs) they signed the release. Yeah, did the release explicitly have all that shit in there? It just probably just prison. had, like, to the discretion of Hogwarts administration. Et cetera, torture prison, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so, and that, so, so, and this is kind of Hermione's first kind of opportunity to, like, you know, just find out all this shit that has happened, both, like, to her and just in general. Um, so she's, she's first asking, like, uh, you know, she asked McGonagall, do, "Do you think I did it? Does Harry think I did it? Does the entire school think I did it?" Um, and McGonagall's being sort of very kind of the, you know, old school classic McGonagall motherly of sort of uh, tersely motherly. Um, but so McGonagall's like, you know, does he like? Oh, certainly not. I don't think you did it. And Harry doesn't think you did it either. Harry thinks that all those memories are fabrication. Um, and my, what just kept striking me, like the, what a strange thing that must've been for her is cause like, just sort of imagine that like you remember doing a thing and then everybody's telling you that, no, you definitely did not do it. And you're like, no, I did it. Like I re-, because if it's a memory charm, it's not like this hazy, like, fa- yes, it's false, but it's apparently, you know, perfectly convincing that, you know, passes bare to sermon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that yeah, there's, there's just nothing fake you, about the memory once it's in your head. And yeah, it'd be like, no, you didn't eat breakfast this morning. I'm like, no, I fucking ate breakfast. No, no, you didn't. Yeah, that, yeah, I, did, I knew what I did. So like how just like unsettling that would be. Oh, yeah. Well, and so that was the other thing, too. The, it's, it's a subtle difference in the way you summarized it. But she's not asking, do you guys think I did it? She's talking about it like it happened. And then uh, Professor McGonagall says, uh, like, because Hermione says, I'm not being expelled for what I did. And Professor McGonagall then explains, like, no, you you're innocent. Oh, he was just, Harry was just saying that to get me free. No, for real. Like, there's no way you did this. She's like, but I, I remember, she, I remember doing it. It's like, and oh, just imagine yeah. how weird that would be for, cause like the completely equally valid way to look at that is, okay, I tried to murder somebody and I feel terrible about it now. And it's the next morning and I totally did it. And everybody's telling me that I'm too nice of a person to have done it and they just don't believe me. So like from your, it's completely like the more sane way to look at it is just like, wow, nobody will believe I could do this terrible thing. But I totally did because I remember doing it. Like that would be like your gut reaction. Like that would be the base, you know, experience of that whole thing is just. I wonder how I could convince my friends. The sky is not blue, Hermione. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, just and especially like combine that with just how fucked up she is in general through the whole experience. She's just been, you know, it's it's semi torture anyway, being around the Dementors and just the horror of everything she went through. And that, you know, on top of that, it's like, oh, and people are just telling you that, you know, your memories are fake. Because I get like, you have to like think about it, like how unsettling that would be. Because you just sort of like, oh, she's like, oh, okay, I guess I was fooled. It's like, no, you're not fooled. Like, you remember the thing and you're being told that that was basically. Because that's like no different than a hallucination from from your perspective. Yeah, total mind fuck. And then that was her. That was what McGonagall was saying. She, you know, when Hermione was trying to articulate why she didn't believe that they believed that she was innocent. She and McGonagall finishes finishes her sentence for her and says, "Oh, you remember doing it, of course. Well, you know, I can I can lock the memory away for you if you want." And she I decides know, that she d- wants to keep them. And this is this is the sad part about her. You know, her whole situation from. You know, and given the mindfuckery involved, it's unclear 
how much of this was her own choice and all that. But she mm-hmm. says that even if the duel was made up, like I still decided to go down to breakfast and act like everything was fine the next day. Like I deserve to feel uh, like shit. Yeah. And, and when I read that, I sort of read that like, okay, like, you know, even her sort of like revised understanding of what happened is that, okay, yes, even if I didn't do it, I decided to try to lie about it and cover it up thinking I had. And that's, and I guess, you know, and that's probably um, what really happened. But even then, like, it's also, you know, equally plausible that even the remembering trying to cover it up is a fake memory. Um, So like, there's no, she can't like trust anything. And then, I mean, that's just totally like completely fucks with your reality. Then she's like, well, can I trust that I am a human on planet Earth? Like, Man, the the letter paranoia goes to Runner? goes to whole new heights when memory charms are involved, right? I know, right? It totally, I mean, it's, it's totally, it's totally the Blade Runner thing. It's like, yeah, none of your memories are real. Yeah, then it's like, it's oh, well, hold on, they they said they believed it. It's like, no, you imagine, you remember them saying they believed it. It's just, oh god, where does this end? Um, <laughs> it just started three seconds ago, but we just had this. We never actually had this conversation. Oh, I just dear. remember having this conversation. Everyone should watch. Uh, Total Recall as well. Also Phil Dick. Oh, nice. That checks out. Yeah. We will remember it for you wholesale. It's the original title of that. <laughs> All right. Let's see. This section, um, I, I like you said how uh, McGonagall was, um, you know, being her, you know, I guess the stern, loving grandma. Like, yeah. uh, her, after Hermione has that realization about like, no, I, I, I was the one who, you know, went down to breakfast and, she had known it was wrong and wrong and horribly, horribly wrong. And I like how it capitalizes more and more of the word wrong yeah. each time. Yeah. Um, then Professor McGonagall's voice was sharp. Like she had, like Hermione just made some dreadful mistake on her transfiguration homework. Stop being foolish, Miss Granger. Horrible is whoever did this to you. And, well, today you're allowed to cry as much as you like. Tomorrow you're going back to class. <laughs> I know. There's something like, especially because you could sort of see, like you only have to, you know, scratch the surface of that sternness to to get it like you could just tell there's you know the sincere concern under it um but also like the way um like the way it's it's really kind of like heartbreaking like the way hermione is talking is sort of very convincingly reminded me of like the the way you hear um like rape or abuse victims talk and the way they start blaming themselves for things that you know clearly weren't their fault uh and sort of like blowing out of proportion any things they perceive as, you know, being being their fault or anything, you know, some small thing that they may have done wrong, they kind of assign blame for the entire thing and just how all of that sort of hate and pain turns inward. And it's yeah. sort of like very convincingly like kind of recreated that that vibe to it. And then and then so that same way that McGonagall then had to kind of like talk her down from it, was, it like felt like kind of the same things you, you say to a rape or an abuse victim. Um, so yeah, the, with a quote I pulled McGonagall said is, I shall only say that you've had just an absolutely dreadful experience, which you survived as well as any witch in your year possibly could. Um, yeah, I like that. <clears throat> and that, that analogy is strong too. And, you know, pro- uh, appropriately depressing, you know, like yeah. it, it's, like the abuse victim who says, oh, no, it was my fault because I covered up and I lied about the yeah. abuse for so long or something. And it's like, yeah. that does not make it your fault. It's the it's the asshole who hit you's fault. It always yeah. is, right? Uh, yeah, and it's, but and, and I, it's, it's like the, yeah, the, the self-blame ins- Yeah, the, and the insidious, mechanism. awful part of it, which is like similar to what Hermione blaming herself about trying to cover it up, is that like in any real si- situation, everybody does do something that's, you know, slightly 
you know, fallible. They do something that's a little bit bad and maybe a little bit wrong. And then they just completely blow that up out of proportion and assign all the blame for the entire situation onto that thing. Um, and kind of like that becomes like the, the guilt foot in the door for them kind of tearing themselves up about it. Uh, later and because I mean like anybody especially like if you get stuck in any one of these situations like things were all fucked up to get you there in the first place so you know any normal human is going to have you know bad things they did along the way that just aren't you know anywhere near the scale of the harm done to them or you know relevant even but so yeah it's really really kind of like yeah heartbreaking like just like how convincing it like communicated that whole thing was pretty gut-wrenching as they say Totally agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like after, so after that, Hermione's like kind of disappointed that, um, that McGonagall's just trying to be supportive. And she said she needed someone to scold her. She couldn't be absolved if she couldn't be blamed. So yeah, it's all sad and fucked up. Yeah. She feels like she needs to own responsibility for at least part of this before she can yeah. feel absolved, which like, again, given the, the degrees of, of fuckery going on, like, I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm trying to think of, yeah, it, it's impossible to put myself in her shoes because fortunately we don't have the ability for someone else to shove memories into my head. Um, but like, you know, somebody puts the memory of me killing somebody in my head, that person ends up dead. And then I'm told, no, actually we, we caught the guy who did it. Maybe because, you know, if, if they'd caught the guy and she'd be like, oh, okay, that asshole did it, then that's different. But, like, if you're just told, oh, no, I'm pretty sure you didn't do it, you know, makes more sense that someone just put the memory in your head. Then there's that, there'll, there'll always be that nagging doubt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's in the, like, totally, like, fucked up, quirly kind of evil to all of it is that, like, he's, like, situated things so that she keeps being hurt by it by everybody but quarrel like she's hurting herself the entire school is hurting her her trust in her friends is now blown up because she doesn't believe she's you know deserves that trust like there's all of these ways that he's like causing her to continue to be hurt by it um so it like makes it like an extra level of like sadistic you keep like assuming that it's quarrel i don't know how you came to this conclusion anywhere You're going to feel was, real dumb when it turns out to be it's Voldemort. A, it's, Lu- <laughs> it's Ludo Baggins. <laughs> or Ludo Bagman, sorry. Bag- oh, that's right, yeah. Ludo Baggins. <laughs> I made you watch the... Uh, this is a great time to segue as we segue between characters that are visiting Hermione. I made you mm-hmm. watch the pitch meeting for the Fellowship of the Ring right before we started recording, so... Killing this, Sean Bean is tight. Killing Sean Bean is tight. Yeah, anyway, okay, that then. was... That whole video was great. So check out Pitch Meeting. This video brought to you by, or this podcast brought to you by Pitch Meetings, the hilarious YouTube series. Which is in turn brought to us by some other advertiser. Yeah, whatever's advertising him that week. All right. So then she, it it cuts with her saying she wants to talk to the headmaster because maybe she's thinking that, all right, I'll talk to a real hero who's been through some actual harrowing shit. And, you know, maybe she's. I'm my mental model of Hermione has her imagining Professor McGonagall as just like just being too nice to give her the straight business. Yeah. And she's like, you know, who, who can actually give me this, you know, give it to me straight Dumbledore. Yeah. So she or I, to if to it him. wasn't even that, like, even if she doesn't necessarily see like one of them as being more stern than the other was just like, okay, well, it's obviously not fucking working with you. So can we get Dumbledore here? Maybe he'll yell at me. I, I can so. just imagine. I, I mean, I get her desperation reaching out for somebody, but I, I can scarcely imagine Dumbledore, you know, being angry at her any more than anyone else. No, fucking yell at me. I'm a piece of shit. Yell at me. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. was a, 
this was a sad thing on after a closer view to the last chapter. So it, it, the, the line break opens up with Dumbledore saying Hermione, and then she saw the Caroline face of Albus Dumbledore leaning over her bedside, looking almost as though he had been crying, though that was impossible. <laughs> and we know that he was, because Harry kicked him in the feels. Oh, yeah. Very sad. Still bitter about that. <laughs> All right. Bad Harry. So she starts out, um, So I mean, basically she's just sort of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a horrible human being again. Um, and Dumbledore is basically doing the same thing, like, no, no, you're not. Um, and like, so one of the first things, and it really does feel like, oh, she's just sort of just like casting about for something to like justify how shitty she feels about herself. Because she then starts thinking like, oh, she's blaming herself for, you know, doing that whatever marriage, that not marriage ceremony with Harry. So that now Harry's like honor bound to whatever wrong she has done. And so she feels bad for her like having dragged Harry into that and Dumbledore was like, besides just being, okay, no, that's stupid. Um, but also that like, oh, you know, if you hadn't done that, then Harry was going to go, you know, burn Azkaban down to get you out. Uh, and it might've worked or it might've killed him. Um, but if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't, you know, gone through the little ceremony, that's what was going to happen after that. So you don't have to feel bad about that either, but it really does feel like as she's going through this, she's just sort of like trying to find something to flagellate herself with to just kind of like attach to her like sense of guilt because uh, she just kind of doesn't have anywhere to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I think that uh, yeah, it's not so much, at least as on my reading, that she was worried about, you know, bringing Harry into the legal business. I don't think he's legally culpable for anything she yeah. did after he brought her into his house under the eyes of the law. I think it's mainly just like he spent all his money. Um, yeah. But then I like this line, too, where uh, uh, she had said, I could have made him not do it. And yeah. then you get like a brief twinkle in Dumbledore's eyes. Really, Miss Granger, maybe you should be headmistress in my place, for I, I myself have no such power over stubborn children. And that's when she like, it, it's hard for her to confess this. But she's like, no, Harry, Pro- Harry, Pro- Harry Potter promised me that he would never help me if I told him not to. And he's like, yeah. ah, well, maybe he would have kept his promise. And she says, I should have I should have gone to Azkaban? Miss Granger, no way. Come on. I like again, he he's being straight and serious, but he's not uh I mean, cuz he can't blame her, right? So like Dumbledore yeah. kind of blamed Harry for not having the foresight to to do this, but he expects Harry to be more than a kid. And Hermione is more than a kid. Yeah. But well, yeah, and, and well, he even talks to her in a second about like how like, you know, basically, yeah, you are a kid and like going to Azkaban is not just something that one does not simply walk into Azkaban. Right. Um. Well, he, and he says, and this is where, I mean, he even tells her that, like, my dad died in Azkaban. When I was a, when I was a first year, there's no fucking way. I would have run from the Dementor that you ran towards at, on the Hogwarts grounds. Like, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It, yeah, and I like that. It's powerful. Like the, yeah, and I like the reference to, like, Harry would have, that, that would have worked because Harry promised and then Dumbledore's like, oh, yeah, you know, I think he, he might have kept his promise. And I just kind of like the little reminder because this sort of feels like <clears throat> Harry's, you know, this whole thing, like Harry's, this entire experience of Harry with trying to save Hermione that feels sort of like the way that like Harry's sort of like rehumanizing himself. And so I liked how like it was this reminder of like, that's one of the things that has been, you know, as Harry's been doing this kind of ebb and flow of being like a little more quarrely and a little more like regular, you know, nice human 
Um, what has been consistent the whole time, though, is his friendship with Hermione and just kind of like that integrity, that like keeping his word and that promise. And so I like to sort of like a reminder of like this is sort of one of the core good things about Harry is like, yeah, you know, as aggro as he was willing to go over that, that that would have been that would have been enough to stop him if, if you had done it. And I like it's like we said that and it was kind of put there as a hypothetical. But at least for me, like I totally believe that. Like if we had played that scene out and Hermione had said, you promised me and I'm calling in on that promise that like, Harry would have just treated that as an absolute that he would have honored. Yeah, that would have, I like I said, I think that was the, um, I think the sub fan fiction is following the Phoenix. I should have verified between this week and last week, but that, that was how that one got kicked off was, uh, well, oh, he doesn't have the, he, yeah, well, so he doesn't have the, um, like the marriage gambling, you know, the marriage slash pay the book. Pay, pay Lucius's extortion fee idea. Instead, he just goes right with the idea of, like, I'm going to have this mentor kill all of you. And then Hermione says, no, Harry, don't. I, I'm accepting this. And then he sits down and shuts up because he promised to. Yeah. And then she goes to Azkaban. I am spoiling the first beginning. I'm spoiling the beginning of the first chapter, but it's fucking tight and people should read it. So was, That sounds kind of like the imaginary way I thought it was going to go. So Somebody yeah. else had, had a similar thought. And they ran with it all the way to publishing oh Self-publishing nice. on the internet, whatever. Nice. Um, yeah, <clears throat> the thing about it, as we go back to that, I've been thinking since then, the last week or two, that um, that. So I'm not not into. We already know I'm like not fully on board with the idea that it's like, oh, we just must keep the whole, you know, uh, human Patronus thing a secret, or the world will end because nobody will ever be able to cast one. But even given that, like, <clears throat> it should still be like on the table, even if Harry did it. Um, in front of other people and just revealed that <clears throat> I'm Harry Potter, the boy who lived, and I can cast this super badass Patronus and it, and I can kill Dementors with it and don't worry about how because fuck you and I'm not going to tell you. Like, <laughs> that's like, that's on the, that's plausible. He could do that and that's like, that's not the oh, no turning back from it move. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, big ass flex. Um, but like, that has repercussions that are acceptable and so then I'm thinking, like, okay, you know, he could have done that. And then, like, what a cool scene that would have been in the Wizard Gammon. Instead of his just doing this sort of, like, lame little, not, I mean, it was still kind of cool, but, like, comparatively only lame. Only like, lame by comparison, yeah. Yeah, lame by comparison, just going boo to, like, have him just, like, walk up and very, like, quietly, not even matter of fact, but just, like, you know, dramatically and without a lot of words, just go up and just fucking end a Dementor in front of the entire Wizard Gamut and then just say, you're not putting her in jail, fucking test me. Um, and then, like, all, and just, like, the big you know, political societal repercussions of suddenly everybody's like, what the fuck was that? Cause they all, so he like shows them all this like human Patronus and he shows them like killing, you know, a Dementor right there in front of, you know, hundreds of powerful witnesses. And he's like, yeah, cause I'm the Kwisatz Heterok. Fuck you. Uh, let my <laughs> friend go. Um, and like how cool a scene that would have been. And like, and like how much of like his goals that might've accomplished. And then like all kinds of like interesting bizarre fucked upness that would like result from that because then like, that would just stir up a hornet's nest of of power politics but like that would have been cool like, and then it like feels like that one's on the table like he doesn't even if you like we're buying the the whole thing of like oh we can't let anybody know how this kind of Patronus is cast because then it would like jinx everybody's ability to do it like I'm not fully sold on that but that's at least like less you know that's not fully nutty but the idea that he just can't possibly even show it, like, doesn't... I'm like, no, nah, I think he, he could do that. And then he would just be, like, the badass motherfucker. Like, people would be, like, seriously afraid of Harry Potter. 
I agree. I think that like not showing the Patronus is just to keep his ability to cast it and like its unusual nature a secret so no one asks him about how he does it. Yeah. Um, but just showing it, you know, that doesn't slow anybody down. Yeah. Dumbledore saw it and he went straight to Azkaban to when Bellatrix was there and wordlessly conjured his own Patronus like a fucking badass. So, uh, <laughs> and he could totally just be like, yeah, I'm not going to fucking tell you. And be like, yeah. Exactly. And he's like, yeah, no. And I think by this point he's... I'm not sure how strong his occlumency is, but, you know, someone, yeah. I guess, yeah, if someone was dumb enough to rip the secret from his mind, then they wouldn't be able to cast the Patronus probably, right? Although I wonder if that would if, count as, If they're as strong like, enough to do it, they'd probably pull off the Patronus. Yeah, or it's because it's not just a matter of strength, it's a matter of, like, mindset. But if, they're, if they could rip out his thoughts, they could maybe rip out the actual mindset. Maybe it would be that easy to teach someone else to do it. Maybe. I'm also not super sold on just the idea that, like, you know, you, like, jinx your brain and that, you know, without the without having your mind right, like you couldn't possibly do it. Like I get it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a convincible opinion. Like, no, just like you'll conquer death, it's cool. Just go with it and be like, okay, cool. And then, yeah. It seems like it's just sort of like a necessary plot device to have it be, you know, oh, if we let the secret out, then nobody could do it. Yeah, it's, at the very least, he doesn't test that concern, yeah. right? Um, it would have been interesting if he, I don't know, like maybe Draco's too not, not, far enough on the si- on the light side of the force yet but like he had taught him to cast the regular patronus mm-hmm. i wonder if like if he just told him how the patronus works it's like he would have been a good test candidate is what i'm saying right yeah yeah, yeah i think it was like, like it doesn't take a super genius to figure out that there's going to be some great important like there's going to be some scene in the next 40 something chapters of harry using the patronus the his new patronus to do something very significant to the plot um and so it's just kind of important like you got to keep that one you know wound up and in the chamber to mix metaphors um so it's just necessary to keep it a secret for the sake of the plot but agreed yes so where were we um we just got to the uh, part where uh basically she's talking with dumbledore about this and he explains that no no it i don't think it was you there was this you know there's an evil force that's uh just hates you because you're good basically yeah, and yeah, this is weird, and this is uh, it kind of like happening. things does it desire or does it desire to destroy? Yeah, he said and this in sort of like, speak. Yeah, it was kind of marked by like a conspicuous shift in in Dumble speak of him getting all Gandalfy and how he was talking. Actually, Gandalf doesn't even talk that flowery. Um, <laughs> but so it was because I read it, and it was like all sounded good, and it was all of a dramatic thing. But yeah, the, the full quote I pulled was, there is evil in this world which knows which knows itself for evil and hates the good with all its strength. All fair things does it desire to destroy. Inverted language in which I speak. Um, the Which, like, it just didn't click for me, because I'm like, okay, so we know this is, well, I, I know, you may, you may have not figured it out, but this was Coral that did it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... That so like we know that it, we know that's Quirrell that did it, and we don't know the full story, but we know that there's Quirrell just didn't do this out of some kind of like, you know, Joker nihilism around like fuck it, because then the line comes later is is um, why not, um, and that that like didn't click for me, and so I'm wondering, and it was enough of a mismatch that I'm thinking that well, it's, either this is on purpose on Dumbledore's part for reasons I don't know, or that it's just going to be significant in that in Dumbledore's misunderstanding of it, because I think we've gotten pretty clear. We've been shown pretty clearly that 
what is going on. We don't know the specifics of the why, but we know that there is a why behind what Quirrell is doing here. Um, and it's, it's not, it doesn't take a lot to connect those dots because we've already been told that Quirrell has some plans to turn you know, Harry into the next Fuhrer of Magical Britain. Um, and he's like working his way towards that. Um, and Hermione is fucking that plan up for him. So there's, and that's not, that's fucked up and evil. And, but it's not, it's not why not? It's not, oh, there's goodness. Let me destroy goodness. It's bitches in my way. I got to end her. Um, which feels like, like it's a different thing. And it was kind of, it was strange too, because some of the other ways Dumbledore has been talking seems like it is more of a, like Dumbledore has been saying like, oh, nobody thinks they're the bad guy in their own story. Sometimes. Um, so this just seemed, it was like so very conspicuously going in the opposite direction, um, along with the like flowery language on top, which not that he hasn't talked that way, but it kind of like got turned on at the same time that he said this thing that re- really felt pretty off. Um, I think that, um, you know, it, I am now on this reread only kind of being aware of when he goes to like the uh, ye old Gandalf speak. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be when he's just being completely serious. Uh, for the most part, like yeah. he, he, I mean, occasionally does this, I guess when he's acting crazy too, it's hard to say, maybe there's a good pattern, maybe there's not, but, um, the, so he, he was saying, um, that for thrice 10 years, I wondered, and I still do not understand you and I will never understand Hermione Granger, but at least I know now what true evil would say for itself. If we could speak to it and ask it why it was evil, it would say, why not? And that was his conclusion after talking with Harry because he had asked Harry to explain, like, why the fuck Voldemort? Like, yeah. you know, you should understand him because he's your dark mirror. Like, Grindelwald was my own. And, you know, why is he afraid of death? And that's where they have their not-so-flattering-to-Dumbledore, uh, or Dumbledore's position, that is, uh, death argument. Yeah. And uh, at the end of that, Dumbledore says, well, at least now I understand Voldemort, if I asked him. Because if, if he really believed what you say you believe about how the universe works that there's no justice, that there's nothing that matters other than us, it would say, you know, if, if I asked him why he was evil, he would say, why not? And I, I don't think Dumbledore has, in my humble opinion, hit the nail on the head because I think that Harry, in the in in the specific context, at the, at the very least, to avoid a broader debate of saying the universe doesn't have a rhyme or reason, doesn't care, you know, there's, there's no moral why to the universe, but there's... Mm-hmm. there's uh, there's care in us and that is what makes meaning I think yeah. that is a perfectly moral standpoint to, to live on so I think that to say well if you believe that then um, you know there's no reason to not to turn evil that's like a shitty religion argument right yeah um, yeah I wonder because I, mean, I guess you could look at what Dumbledore is saying as that because it, I totally like it would be really accurate to say that like Quarrel is like the purest form of selfishness. Like he's, he's only, you know, cool with Harry because he just, because he, he doesn't regard him as a different person. Um, so to, to think of that as like, okay, there's to say that Quirrell believes in nothing but himself, that there is no meaning to the universe. There's just me like that works. And I guess that could be what Dumbledore means when he says, why not? But it seems more like he's just like, just calling because that, that selfishness, selfishness to like not quite good enough a word for it but that like almost like solipsism like i am just the only thing of importance in the universe um that's not the same at least for me that's like not the same thing as nihilism um 
or just like or like crazy ass jokerishness that it's just <clears throat> because like the way Coral acts is at least to some extent predictable. Um, like it's evil and fucked up, but it's predictable. And so it's also and it's not and it's not just like for because it's like just like, oh, you know, destroy goodness for the sake of destroying goodness. That is just that kind of nihilism and just kind of like a blind reflex towards just, you know, hurting things, which doesn't seem like that's Coral at all. He's, you know, in active, positive pursuit of enlarging his greatness, um, which is a goal and which is not, you know, just mindless destruction and you've hit the nail on the head of why i am if i'm reading this book for the first time with no future knowledge uh like this to me is the strongest counterpoint for quarrel being voldemort um you know we haven't seen voldemort on screen other than the flashback when he kills lily and Mm. it's like he's every bit the puppy kicking mustache twirling asshole right yeah. And so Quirrell doesn't seem to have that. So Dumbledore fought the Joker for 10 years or someone, you know, acting I like guess, close yeah. enough to the Joker where like Quirrell seems to have. Yeah, he's he's dark and selfish and uh, whatever. Uh, I think Harry says he's not evil. He's just a little dark and a whole lot Slytherin. He's that. But he's not this, you know, Joker-esque psycho. Yeah, although, so that's what I'm wondering, and I'm still not clear, um, I have that in my notes a little bit later, like, how much, how much is Dumbledore pretending not to know uh, about what's going on? But I guess if, if Dumbledore really does not see Quirrell and Voldemort as the same thing, then I guess if you just think of that, because I've been thinking of, like, Voldemort is, like, among the characters that Quirrell plays, um, and, and we don't have it any back. But I guess it, it, what kind of clicked for me was like the idea, like him telling the story of Voldemort destroying Doctor Strange's retreat. Um, that it, what like it, that clicked is like, oh, this is a story, and Voldemort is a character. And yes, that that is him, but it's also not really him. Um, <clears throat> and that so, it, but if Dumbledore has <clears throat> bought into that, where where he doesn't see that that Voldemort as like a, a fiction, like a, as a constructed thing, um, then I, like if you buy into that Voldemort as a real thing, then he does like I don't think that's how Voldemort was portrayed in the original books, but I could see how that Voldemort in these in this book, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you could see him as being like just a kind of nihilist Joker thing. I think in the originals we 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 saw Voldemort kind of more the way we're kind of seeing Quirrell as just sort of like fearfully running from death. Um, but we don't have, we don't have, a, Voldemort's a very like unpainted picture right now. Um, and so I guess it is totally plausible that the Voldemort that Dumbledore is thinking about is just kind of like a unhinged psycho force for evil for the sake of evil. Um, and that could be, and so maybe that is like, that is what Dumbledore thinks. And so maybe Dumbledore does have this like, you know, inaccurate view um, of it, but because that was like the first, my first thought was like, okay, this doesn't click, so I'm not entirely sure that I even believe that Dumbledore believes what he's saying here. But now I'm wondering if <clears throat> it's just because like Dumbledore has like a just an inaccurate impression of like what he's dealing with. Because it did seem like the way it was said, I think, was not like, it's not a coincidence that the level of that mismatch for what we have been shown about like Quirrell's motivations and the extent to which Dumbledore tried to play 
to characterize it as just evil for the sake of evil. Like there's enough of a disparity there that I think we're supposed to see this. We're supposed to notice the the inaccuracy here um, to try to kind of point us to something else. Um, yeah, I it could be. I, I think I'm trying to remember like if Voldemort got any painting at all in uh, like any any fleshed outness in canon because like he he succeeded in his let's not be de- you know let's avoid death thing forever but he still went on to make his little terrorist cell and try and overthrow the government and kill kids and do all this nasty shit so like it it seems like him that that Voldemort for canon just seemed like he just wanted to be an asshole like and that was his motivation like because <laughs> which isn't a I good think, answer well <clears throat> no i mean it was and i think in the originals it was like the whole like you know, trying to avoid death thing. I, I think it was was just sort of like, okay, we need to come up with some reason why the bad guy is a bad guy. But, but I did like I thought more like that by the end he wasn't still. It wasn't just still evil for the sake of evil that um, that his like he had sort of resurrected himself, but that he that it was still like an incomplete project, and that was like why he was trying to get the resurrect get you know all three Deathly Hollows together. Um, that he was like oh, and I guess kill Harry there. Potter. And kill Harry Potter. Yeah, 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 I guess that's true because that, he's also like this thing hanging over him. It's like, okay, that's going to potentially kill you. But so even like the original Voldemort's motivations were all around this kind of like ultimately fearful um, pursuit of, so not pursuit's the wrong word, this, this fleeing from destruction that he's, you know, it was a self-preservation like kind of born out of fear. Um, and I think that's sort of like the, the theme from the originals is like, um, like everybody's gotten all twisted about the whole deathist part of it, but I think like the 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 dichotomy set up I think in the originals was a difference between like pursuing life um, versus like just fleeing death, um, and like Voldemort was shown as sort of like the fruitlessness of just you know being in flea mode. Yeah, and if that's um, your ultimate goal, then you know if you have to attack a, a school and kill a bunch of kids to keep it, then like I mean, <laughs> if your plan is to live to be a billion years old and you don't and you're also an asshole you're like well i'll even if you don't really want to kill some kids you're like yeah i'll get over the guilt in a million years and i've got 900 million more years to enjoy being guilt-free about it it's all about the long view exactly and when you live forever (laughs) you got to think long term um i'll cure malaria after that and we'll call it even (laughs) oh wait that's bill gates never mind um but i mean he hasn't done the voldemort part yet maybe he's going to do it in reverse order as you know well, he's he's gonna go Voldemort after he cures malaria. Yeah. I mean, if he cures, if he does the equivalent to curing three more malarias, you know, it's hard to argue. Or rather, I'm not willing to argue. Let's let's push exactly. past it. I like this line a lot. Um, Dumbledore says, "If you insist on putting it that way, then yes, Hermione, this day's trial broke you. But what happens after you break? That too is part of being a hero, which you are, Hermione Granger, and always will be." And yeah, she, I like that. Like he's that. the best. I know. Yeah, it was cool. And that, like, so we're getting the payoff for the, like, oh, yes, you know, Dumbledore was always, you know, always wanted you to be a hero, even through the act of trying to talk you out of it was just him trying to make it happen. Um, so, like, we get the, like, kind of the that dramatic payoff of, like, oh, you know, the most powerful wizard in the world just called you a hero. And then we also get to see Hermione being completely incapable of processing that. Like she is just, you know, as he's just been talking about, she is too broken to even hear that, you know, Dumbledore thinks of her as a hero for what she's going through. Um, 
which also worked like it. And then it reminded me of how Harry was in those, you know, days after coming back from Azkaban, where that was sort of like Harry kind of like fully coming into hero mode and us getting to see like the, the non-swagger, non-chest puffy view of being a hero that Harry's just like, no, this is like, this is just me having to deal with the shit that's going on and not trying to like posture into being a hero. And that's kind of, that's what reminded me and, and how sort of, I think the word I used was like battle worn that Harry was. And that feels like how Hermione is like, she's too fucked up by the situation and just having to deal with it to try to get all meta and, and pat herself on the back for being a hero. She's just like trying to deal with what's in front of her. Um, so I liked, it was like kind of both of those at the same time we got to see, like, it was like, Oh, she won the, you know, the Oscar for, you know, best hero. Um, but is, you know, like too caught up in it to, you know, try to, you know, be aware of it. She's just like, trying to deal yeah no i i agree it's awesome yeah and that that's when he just kind of gets up and i imagine him giving her a reassuring pat on the shoulder but i don't think it says that and then leaves and dumbledore walks away yeah and so then we see dumbledore's walking out we get to see dumbledore and mcgonagall do a little post-mortem um as they're walking away i think it kind of describes it like dumbledore's like too busy and like task going in is like walking away and so mcgonagall has to be like following him and walking along but um, but so then we get some uh, background between McGonagall and Dumbledore. McGonagall sort of like has gotten an earful from Harry, which she almost entirely agrees with and is basically just, you know, uh, recommunicating it to Dumbledore while uh, not ever forgetting to mention that she agrees with it. Um, I can't remember how she kept saying it's like, well, some people think, I think that's how she kept um, saying it, but it's like she's so she's like a little bit irritated um, with the whole situation and and a little bit with like how Dumbledore is handling it and she's and and pretty much on Harry's side for um, for most of it. But but so she's basically like communicating Harry's kind of list of demands um, that Harry's sort of very adamant about like Hermione needs to get the fuck out of here. She's not safe here. We got to send Hermione to Bobaton. Um, and then, every, and then I can't remember if it was like just for Hermione, but like everybody needs a pouch to carry their stuff in and, and they need a, like a key port, a port key and a time turner and a two person broom to fly around on. And conspicuously um, not a handgun. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. Just yeah. saying. I mean, you can, you can pull a trigger really fast. You don't have, you don't have to say a spell. I, 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 I remember, sure. I think we, we shared the whole text of that, uh, like, early on in the podcast, why Harry should have carried uh, a pistol. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all I'm thinking of. Oh, you just get, you know, better transfiguration, and then anything is a pistol. <laughs> so I that would be summon like, pistol. <laughs> I know, it's like, all the, all the other goal, like, oh, thou shalt not do this, that, or the other. It's like, okay, yeah, thou shalt not, but, you know, I shalt transfigure your heart into jello. I think you've got to touch the person to do it, but I don't see why you couldn't do it then. Was transfer? Did we already put that? That does. I don't. That feels like a forced. At at least this. No, you're right. At least the first year level of of transfiguration. I think they got to touch the subject. Yeah, but just like like, you know, uber like you know, wizard assassin shit. You could just like wordlessly transfigure you know their frontal lobe into Swiss cheese, and then just uh, fall down dead, and you wouldn't know why. I I like where you're going with it. I wonder what damage that would do after, like, the transfiguration wore off. They'd probably still be... Oh, yeah, they'd definitely still be dead because their heart would have stopped and everything. So yeah. that actually sounds like a really good way to assassinate somebody. I know, right? Nobody would know. Oh, yeah, especially, especially if it all went back. Magic is just, like, how does anything get done 
with criminal law <laughs> with magic. <laughs> well, they have magic for that. Yeah, they, they can read people's minds and see if they did it. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. Jeez. Wait a minute. Um, oh, yeah, so uh, I... And you're right, when I was thinking about the transfiguring stuff at a distance, I think that they transfigured... I think it did say transfigure, not conjured. The, uh, like, the seating for the Christmas battle or something. Because it's mentioned that Minerva was happy to have transfigured, like, this big project. And there's no way they flew around on brooms and did it, touching it the whole time, right? So Yeah. yeah. Well, no, yeah, I definitely, like, maybe you need to... I, I, I don't remember that, but I, even if you did say, like, oh, you need to be touching it to transfigure it, you definitely don't need to be touching it for it to stay transfigured, because, yeah, because that did right. the time. And we've had other things, like, oh, that chicken was actually, or those pigs, like, there was something in... They transfigured an inanimate object into an animal so that when it went back to blah, 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 but... But yeah, you could definitely like let the thing go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to find a smoother segue for this. I, you know what? So I will. I'll save it for later. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of, yeah, one of the things so, um, also among Harry's list of demands that McGonagall's communicating is, I forget, like Harry doesn't know he's, but Harry sort of refers to it as what, dark wizard? Uh, attracting. Attracting. Attract, <laughs> so, so, hey, because I don't think Harry knows that it's the Resurrection Stone, right? It's not the or Resurrection not. Stone. Oh, it's not. Well, it's, but but no, there's something. Because, well, and then Dumbledore talks, or am I getting the, just the terminology confused? You're, the, yeah, the, so, the flamel thing. The flamel thing was the, the Philosopher's Stone. That was oh, the oh, title okay. of the first book. Okay. Which but is not the Resurrection weird. Stone? You just read this. I know, yeah. I uh, well, I, you know, it's a good book I you know, read right. two years ago. Or actually, if you just finished the seventh um, one, you'd probably been reading them for a long time I'm, st- I'm still that. standing by the... the uh, the position that the, that distinction is kind of lame it, it is yeah. but they're different artifacts so like the resurrection stone summons an image or possibly actually summons a dead person um which is never really hell. explored and even when harry gets it in the canon yeah. version he gets like solid looking ghosts of his parents mm-hmm. um but the philosopher's stone is the classic thing from other you know fictional lore uh including full metal alchemist where it can like fountain um, of youth, yeah, <clears> fountain <throat> of youth, and turn money and or turn or what infinite gold. Infinite that gold. that was what uh, <laughs> because because those, those are related. Yeah, because those are related. Good point. <laughs> um, it was uh, I think I can't it also makes like, you very the, attractive. And that was just like the whole like uh, you know alchemical end product. Yeah. You know back back when alchemy was a thing, our our slightly stupider ancestors were actually working on. That was something that they were trying to somehow synthesize. Was was apparently a some some way to do that? Yeah. Again, I'm with you. It's not clear why those two things are related, but mm-hmm. um, it's what they have funny to do that you should mention that with Florida. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Her- Dumbledore says he can't move the. Uh, it, oh, he does say the stone with a capital S, but that doesn't say philosopher or resurrection stone. Uh-huh. You're right. Um, there are two. There are two magic rocks, Brian. All right. All right. Fine. All right. And so, but flamel, flamel, flamel. Um, made the Philosopher's Stone or the Resurrection Stone? Philosopher's Stone. Okay, and so that's what we think is the Voldemort bait? That's what we think is the Voldemort uh, bait. The other, the other three hallows are made by the um, Peveril brothers. Um, Remember that really um, cool animation <clears throat> thing that was all like, gin, you know, a, a Burton-esque style yeah, it looked like cutout a, uh, thing? Yeah, it looked like a tool video. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so he says, I can't because Master Flamel insists. 
that it stays here. And yeah, that struck me as weird. I'm like, who the fuck? Like, fuck that guy. Like, who's, he's not the boss of you. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that, um, I mean, unless he is the boss of him for some reason. But <laughs> aside from that, his his reasoning is that he believes that Voldemort has means of finding it wherever it is hidden and does not consent for it to be guarded anywhere but Hogwarts. And so, like, given that reasoning, Dumbledore is like, all right, well, if Voldemort's going to find it, I still want to trap him here. So, um, Yeah, I get that. I mean, that uh, that's a solid theory. Yeah. That seems like, that's, that seems like a better argument than because Flamel said so. Right. Well, the boss says... So. Literally nothing we can do. And then she yeah. agrees with Harry. And I like this. Uh, and he pulled out a lot of this quote, too. Dumbledore says, Minerva, you've known me long... You don't... Excuse me. You have known me long, and as well as any soul still living. Tell me, have I lost myself to darkness already? And uh, it says his voice caught as he said that. And clearly he's having some some turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, yeah, so it's immediately, I'll read the, pull the rest of it. It's like, the old wizard's lips pressed together tightly before he spoke. For the greater good, I have sacrificed so many for the greater good. Today I almost condemned Hermione Granger to Azkaban for the greater good. And I find myself, today I found myself, beginning to resent the innocence that is no longer mine. The old wizard's voice halted. Evil done in the name of good. Evil done in the name of evil, which is worse. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Uh, and I had, later I thought about this too that yeah that like like a it's just sort of like uh interesting to see him get a little bit more of a layered character of the so I, I really like like both dumbledore and harry have a lot of sort of like self-doubt leaving things in a very sort of uncomfortable unresolved state um but that also i think that's like significant to this too is that this is and i like admirable but it's also sort of a fairly kind of abstracty kind of way for uh dumbledore to be sort of like feeling a guilt trip about um, about like oh maybe I'm you know dark and whatever because it's sort of like no not really shut up um, but like it it was this that I thought about later when wondering about the um, Narcissa Malfoy story because uh, we keep like it's sort of being conspicuously hung in the air um, kind of in the same way of um, of Hermione's you know you know quote attempted murder of Draco of like here's the thing that everybody thinks is true but maybe we don't think it's true as that sort of being held out there as a like, okay. And then Harry's like trying to wonder, you know, oh, okay, maybe Dumbledore just like kind of did all the ethical math on it and decided that, you know, it was worth, you know, setting the woman on fire. Um, <clears throat> this little scene with, with Dumbledore is like feeling sort of very sincerely expressed, just worry about like his own goodness uh, made me think like, okay, the person that worries about this uh, and is still sort of um, troubled by like the, even, you know, the people that he's just allowed to have been killed is not going to be the same person that would actually, you know, set a woman on fire um, just to intimidate his enemies. Um, so and it's, so we've had that, like, floating around. It's like, is, is this a thing that really happened, or is this just a story that Dumbledore is allowing to keep get, getting retold because it's because it helps him to have people believe it? Um, this is where I'm like, and, and this is a thing that, like, you know, most people don't get to see this. So Dumbledore is able to sort of like, you know, perpetuate the fiction that he's this like cold-blooded psycho um, and use that to his advantage. Um, but like, so we get to see this. I'm like, oh, okay, but you know, this man isn't going to be somebody that would actually do that. Also, Fox says he's a good person. Yeah, Fox is the, the beacon of good. Yes. Yeah, Although like the, the, there's the next bit here too where um, he asks her, like, did you even think to weigh the consequences before you showed Hermione how to bind herself to mm-hmm. the House of Potter? 
and she and she kind of thinks and her face says that she didn't and he's like ah so you didn't no no don't apologize it is well for what you've seen of me this day if your first loyalty is now to harry potter and not to me then that is right and proper and then he cuts her off before she can protest indeed indeed that will be necessary and more than necessary if the dark lord that harry must defeat to come into his power is not voldemort after all and she says, not this again, Albus. You know who, not you, who marked Harry as his equal. There is no possible way that prophecy could be talking about you. It's like multiple levels of silly that he would think. Uh, maybe I'm the evil that Harry has to defeat. Well, no, he's just being I emo. Mean, what if he's not being emo? Like, just, I'm not saying that's the case, but like, entertain that. Dumbledore seems to be at least concerned about that possibility. Like, to me, this was, this stood out a lot. Like, it's, it's not clear to me how he's the, uh, you know, he he doesn't scream Dark Lord to me. Um, well, and also like, and that he sort of says the exact thing to Hermione when Hermione is thinking about it. He's like, you know, evil people don't worry about whether or not they're evil. Um, also, <laughs> so he's just he, sort of like, he's you know, convinced you gotta, he won't be evil got, as long as he keeps, you know, wringing his hands enough. Exactly. Well, and you've got like Dumbledore being all like, you know, self-flagellating about, you know, double, you know, questioning his motives and, and the wisdom of his past actions standing next to evil shit Voldemort has done over and over again like okay wondering which one of these is which one of these is the dark wizard the headmaster of Hogwarts or murder McMurder face <laughs> the other thing I like about it is that Minerva says not this again yeah which means that he's clearly asked her about this before or had this out with her I know then it and... starts to almost feel like he's like the oh I'm terrible no, you're not. Oh, say it again. Oh, I'm terrible. <laughs> oh, come on. No, you're fine. Shut this again, fucking whiny little bitch. I, I don't I don't think Dumbledore's looking for reassurance Put like that. Put on your big boy pants, Albus. I, th- I think that at the big very least, he, he, he has some some reasoning to him, which is probably bullshit because we know he's the super nice Gandalf, but... To him, he, he seems legitimately worried about it. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy looking, you know, what do you call it? Yeah, fishing, no, did, fishing for compliments. No, fishing, for, fishing for compliments or something. No, it really didn't. No, it did play to me as like a, like unnecessarily like tortured about it, but like that the fact that he's tortured about it reflects well on him. I agree. Um, that and the sort of the, like the way it kind of calls back to like how flippant's the wrong word, but like how sort of minimizing Harry was about like just the the simplicity of, you know, moral decisions and that it can, you know, right is right and you just know what to do that like Dumbledore really does feel the emotional cost of the people that he's lost and the responsibility of knowing that like so many of those people are lost consciously. Like he, you know, he was lost and he knew they were, they were going to be lost by what he chose to do. Um, that that's, that's also not just like an abstract thing for him. He's still kind of tortured by it and just, you know, wounded by the, you know, loss he's had. Yeah. And that, that might be, you know, the the key ingredient and the difference there is that he's not moving his pawns, you know, to take a bullet to protect the rooks, you know, without a concern. He's doing it and it breaks his heart every time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they're not, yeah, they're not pawns. They're people. They're his friends. They're his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. then we get a, a line break to uh, transition. We, we go to commercial and when we come back, we are in to the holding the cell with uh, Professor Quirrell. It's it's, a, it's it's a very nice little holding cell with you know, uh, a rocking chair with yeah. that's plush and richly textured and uh, self warming cushions and probably comfortable air conditioning and no TV but there's magazines 
And I thought this was funny. As for toiletries, well, it wasn't exactly <laughs> luxurious, but there was a spell on the room that would put all that business on hold. <laughs> all that business. What's funny is that you she weren't to go anywhere down. without without or where the watching aura couldn't see you. Which, of course, now you just piss, you know. Well, you often get to face a mirror, and then the cop or the uh, person administering the pee test gets to watch you through a mirror. So you don't have to make eye contact nice. with them, but they get to watch you. Uh, I don't know how it is in other countries. That's how it is in the U.S. Not for every piss test for every job, but it is for uh, if you're on parole or probation. Um, That's how it was when you were on parole? Yep. <laughs> Not going to elaborate on that. Yeah, 10%, 10% of the, now 10% of the listeners will think it was me. No, I, I, uh, I, at the pizzeria I worked at in college, um, we had, I think while I was there, three guys who lived at the halfway house, which uh, for our, non- our non-American listeners, they probably have similar things. Well, maybe not because prisons over there aren't Azkaban's, but you're out, <laughs> you're out of prison, but like, you know, you can't just like get an apartment. You're halfway you, out you of prison. Exactly. You're halfway out of prison because they want to keep you on a super tight leash, but also, uh, you know, you don't have a deposit for a, an apartment and stuff. So it's sort of a way to ease you back into society and a way to ease room for more people to go to prison. So, um, you know, you, it's not like the halfway house is free. You get to pay for that too. Yeah. Anyway, we hired three guys who, uh, who were there, who lived at the halfway house while they, when they started and yeah, I mean, they had to, you know, do thrice weekly P tests and this and that. And they, had all kinds of fun stories to share. Also, the nicest guys ever. You know, not true of everyone who spent time in prison, but it was true of these three guys. Um, anyway, back to the book. As they got so, to, to share the gory details of piss tests. Well, I just thought it was funny because to them, they'd said that there, you weren't to go anywhere where the watching aura couldn't see you. So instead of saying, well, the watching aura gets to watch you take a shit, <laughs> they, they just say, There's you know what, no we'll, just put a, we'll put a spell in the room. <laughs> or doesn't just, want to watch that. Yeah, you, you don't have to go to the bathroom while you're in here, which sounds super useful. I mean, and super terrible. Just imagine if they put that on your cubicle at work. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom. Actually, no, you don't. That's not an excuse anymore. No, excuse no it'd breaks. It'd be good for road trips, though. It would be great for road trips. But it's like, I imagine that it also makes you not thirsty and stuff. So, like, you don't even have to get up to get a drink if your cubicle has this spell on it. Also, if you're, if you're, a, wizard, if you're a wizard, you're not working a cubicle. And you're not going on road trips. I can't remember if they had cubicles or not, but there was, you know, the, the Ministry of Magic has offices. Oh, yeah. Like, so there are still desk jobs. Actually, no, I think it was like the, it was like the old schooly, like 1950s Britain, you know, accountants lined up in a, you know, 10 by 10 grid of plain wooden desks with, uh, it was like, I don't they, have a cubicle. They that. Yeah, there, there were no cubicles. It was everybody like sitting in a desk with a typewriter. Madness. Madness. Anyway. So they've got this, uh, um, there was no evidence to indict him except for that a terrible, unusual crime had been committed at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And going by previous occasions, the odds were five to one that the current defense professor was tangled up <laughs> in it somehow. This, to, add, or to this must be added the fact that nobody in the DMLE even knew who the defense professor was, and the man had literally sneezed at all attempts to uncover his true identity. Why no, they hadn't released Queerness Quirrell back into Hogwarts just yet. I liked how before he literally sneezed at it, you made a joke months ago about him sneezing some powerful magic or something. You'd used words, right? You'd use the word sneeze Did magic I? or something. Yeah. And so I, I stored that away oh, as a hilarious little chestnut for later. <laughs> I should have actually written that down somewhere. I'm not keeping that enough in the going. podcast. I so should that's be. like a good, good uh, demonstration of uh, confirmation bias. 
Well, so we I also mean, need to, we need to, we also need to keep track of all the just like wildly laughably wrong shit. I've... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that, that, that's not like a that's not like a guess for something you got right. It was just funny that you use those words because it's a phrase that comes to mind. And so, like when the author was writing that scene, he was like, "Ha! I'll have him literally sneeze and <laughs> knock this magic away or whatever he did." So, um, I think it was a nice touch too because it's it's like a like a transparently fake little admission of like a you know a slight physical foible like. Oh, I must have allergies or something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm allergic to your weak-ass magic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So and then he's hanging out in the, the cell. Humming. humming. And he starts humming. This is, like, really well done. I, uh, it's just, like, the, the absurdity and, like, arbitrary nature of this weird little mindfuck was pretty cool. But, yeah, it goes, like, an extended description of how you could, you know, make maddeningly uh, bad humming. And that if you kept it up long enough, uh, that you could drive somebody insane. I like it was like another sort of like good, like that. It was sort of a strange demonstration of competence porn, that like he's so, like capable of fucking with people that he can just do it by humming. Um, the only possible explanation for how this mode of humming came to exist is that it was deliberately designed by some unspeakable cruel genius who woke up one day feeling bored with ordinary torture who decided to handicap himself and find out whether he could break someone's sanity just by <laughs> humming at them. <laughs> Again, it's, it has this, just sort of that like weird predatory thing to it too. Where it's, like, it's like, you know, a cat like, you know, batting the mouse around because he doesn't want to eat it yet. Like he's, uh, he's just sort of like sitting there very passively just being like, I'm just going to own you and I'm going to do it in the easiest, like the lamest way possible just to amuse myself. So, so yeah, it was a, awesome. Like, demonstration of like the level of power. I can so, dig it. Yar. Uh, so we, and uh, we do get, we do get the Or's name, but it's, he was a red shirt as far as I could tell. But um, I've got to, I've got to drop this too. Cause you put in the notes that Steven tells me I should really listen to the audiobook, which you should because, <laughs> or cause humming and someone put together like a music mock-up of it. And when I Googled it, I found a Reddit post from eight years ago, which makes me feel old because I remember reading this when this came out. <laughs> and uh, it opens to a link that's only playable in Firefox. So I opened oh it in Firefox God. and the link said How to open it that? in Firefox. I don't, I'm not sure. But in any case, Internet security on Firefox won't even play it anymore. So I could download it. Uh, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I couldn't find it with the five minutes I spent looking while I was at work today. So You tried an IE5. I tried. I was going to use it for the intro or outro music for this episode, but honestly, it would be terrible. So, uh, nice. anyway, I like. Oh yeah, this is like an unnecessary. Uh, call. I don't need to show this information, but I will. There's something like how it was described. Uh, yeah, similar to a known lullaby, but it departs from the pattern unpredictably. It sets up expectations and then violates them. It reminded me. I don't know if you've ever had the same experience, but when you smell a like tasty food smell combined with a really disgusting like sewage or rot kind of smell that like there's like the extra grossness of that because it's somehow the smell is like able to like sneak past your guard <laughs> like your brain's yeah. like oh yeah popcorn and shit oh. <laughs> <laughs> something about that description of the humming like reminded me of that like it like it's like prying your brain open and then shoving in the nasty thing i like how the so the humming slows down and like the R is thinking, oh, okay, maybe oh, this is the time. And like his hope is being squashed because this has happened like over the previous four <laughs> hours. By the way, this has been happening for four hours. And then as the interval lengthened and lengthened, that hope rose again unstoppingly, uh, unstoppably. And the humming began once more. The R cracked and he reaches for his mirror to call for backup. 
He calls it an RJL20, which I looked up is uh, a cameo for the creator of HPMOR.com. And uh, nice. he goes by the internet handle RJL20 on the Less Wrong forums. There's so a, there it like is. A yet another level of, well, then where did that name come from? We'll have to ask the, uh, the creator of HPMOR.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so there's some, uh, so there's a little bit of like humming. That's stupid. What are you worrying about? And then was it Amelia Bones? Like, because Amelia Bones wasn't who he called, but like she comes in on the call or something. But she's she's, she's in the room doing uh, her paperwork, and so like that's she sits in because you know she's surrounded by underlings who aren't like as super badass as she is, mm-hmm. and so she says, "Hey, look the the protocol." doesn't say you ask why they're calling it an RJL20. It yeah. says you relieve them. If they're abusing it, I will do something about it. Now shut up and do your fucking job. Mm-hmm. So then she goes in to relieve our Altenae. Okay. Which, yeah, I'm not like, sure where that name comes from. Yeah, it's got to be another thing. But, uh, yeah, and Quirrell's just, how does he, he's like, good evening, Mr. Altenae, or something like that. Or he says, goodbye, Mr. Altenae, and then good evening, Madam Director. <laughs> yeah, and so Bones comes in acting like badass again um and i like that so to me that's like felt like it uh like it was in contrast to the much lamer way that because it's sort of the same kind of interrogation that the first or tried to do on him but would but quarrel just sneezed at him like this is more like they like okay we've graduated we, we're up to tier one support and amelia bones is now going to interrogate you and she comes um, in armed with a dossier titled Possible Hints to the Identity of the Current Defense Professors of Hogwarts, as compiled <laughs> by R. Ro- Robards. Which also must be a thing. Must be. But, it's like she comes in and reads the title of this. And she's like, hey, I got a whole dossier here on uh, who you probably are. So let's get started. I'm not going <laughs> to interrogate you. I'm going to tell you who you are. And you tell me if it sounds yeah. familiar. <laughs> yeah. So she starts describing it like so a th- little bit. Yeah. I guess it it kind of gives us a, an idea of like how little they know about Quirrell um, because she gives like basic, like basically pretty much all they know is like when he was born or supposedly born. Um, I can't remember, like I'm confusing the, did they, do they know at a time that Quirrell went to Hogwarts or is that just for the other guy? Um, their alter ego. I it remember. must, but, they, but to, I think it's for the alter ego, like because Quirrell, I think, is described as in his thirties or forties, yeah. and this uh, guy was yeah, born well, in in nineteen twenty seven. Yeah, they do. I was. Oh no, no, because they, they talk about. I think it was like nineteen seventy something was the um, the Doctor Strange Do- scene. The, oh, that um, was when he uh, he vanished. I forget what what did it say. It was the oh the Oni affair was nineteen sixty nine. And so then sometimes... And was the Oni Affair... Now I'm getting confused. Did the Oni Affair happen to... The Oni Affair happened to Quirrell because Quirrell described, had described it already. Or was so, he there or was that just a story he heard? Well, it, it clearly happened yeah. um, because the ministry has a name for it and it's on paper, so... But had Unless Quirrell gonna... told that story as a thing that he witnessed or was it just a story he had heard? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, but like, so he didn't explicitly claim to have been there. My, my current guess... At, at my time of reading this the first time was that this is like some guy who was born in 1927 walking around looking like a 40 something year old who calls himself queer and a squirrel. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm, I was just trying to like get the stories like what is the quarrel narrative? Like what is what is quarrel? What do they think they know about quarrel? Is it do, do they think quarrel was at that 
Chinese, Asian, I don't think we're specifically, at, at the non-specifically Asian martial arts training, do they do they think Quirrell was there? Did Quirrell ever claim to be there? That's the part I can't remember. Uh, Quirrell um, claimed to be there. He said that he, he went there. and studied there, and that's where he learned to lose. And then Voldemort, and uh, then yeah, Voldemort okay, was yeah. like, I want to learn martial arts, and they're like, you don't have any discipline, okay. so he rips his yeah. tongue out and kills everybody. Exactly. Um, so, and that's kind of like the, at least for what Amelia Bones says, that's like the extent to the background they have on Quirrell on the character of Quirrell. Um, well, they've got a lot. They've got a bit about how he, his, uh, apparently his grandmother had a, you know, a high seat on the wizen gamut. And oh, um, when would have been in 1971, it says uh, that he, the, this mysterious person um, that they think, it, that they think Quirrell is, uh, fended off some Death Eaters trying to kidnap the daughter of the Minister of Magic and use the killing curse to kill two of them. Yeah, but you know, that's the that's the new... Who did I say start... I was calling him Nathan Hale in my... Uh, just in my head since we don't have a name for him yet, but... No, I was just trying to know what they... So if we were going to go with the fiction of, okay, Quirrell... Like, if we were go- going to believe that Quirrell is a real person with a story, the only things they know about him are basically, like, when he was born, that there's the story... Um, of him seeing Voldemort destroy that training center, and that's kind of it. And then he becomes the the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, but that's all they know about. If they're going to believe that there's a coral person, that's all they know about that coral person. Because the grandmother or whatever being on the wizard gamut, that was the other hero, the, the older guy, right? They haven't said anything about... Quirrell. I think we're we're getting confused because we keep calling both of them Quirrell. We'll yeah. say. We well, no. So what I'm saying, like Quirrell, like the, yeah, the 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 character, not yeah, not that person, but the character of Quirrell, that that persona, that the, because a bunch of the other stuff that Bones talks about is about this other Nathan Hale dude, um, but for the persona of Quirrell, that's kind of all they know about him is that they so they've got a date of birth that they think is definitely around not 1920 something, but like I can't remember 19. It was 1927. So all, no, all of the stuff the, that she's that's listing. That's the Nathan Hale there. dude, right? Because they have a oh, different. Yeah. They they don't list uh, Quirinus Quirrell's birthday. Uh, I thought they didn't. No. I thought we had something pegging his age. Uh, that was earlier in the book. Uh, okay. Like they just say he looks like he's in it. Uh-huh. It's just something about how, how this was like our first nod to the fact that he doesn't have a Voldemort on the back of his head because it said yeah. that his hair was slightly thinning, even though he looks like he is in his 30s. Mm-hmm. So. I, she doesn't talk about Quirinus Quirrell here at all. She's talking exclusively, I think, about... Uh, no, I'm pretty sure she does I mean, it's, it's not super important. I think in the beginning, she. I mean, but kind of the point of it is for her to say how little they know about him. But she does give a little bit of what they know about Quirrell. Um, I'm not seeing it. Matter. But, but yeah, yeah we'll, we'll push past um, it. But, uh, so yeah, but so then she goes into like this big, long description of this other guy, um, and the reason why I, like, I started calling him Nathan Hale, just because I was trying to think of, because the description of him was of like basically like a war hero, because uh, it felt very much like we ought to have some sort of like pop culture equivalent to him that isn't like, because he was sort of a little bit of like kind of a Captain America vibe to him, but not what felt different about it was that it would feel like, because it was so, like the description of him was very kind of tied to dramatic public news kind of events that it felt like we should have some sort of like pop culture equivalent to this guy that is of a real person. Like, you know, he completely dr- dramatized, is that a word? Um, like an unrealistic, but you know, some real life person that we've blown out of proportion and started like giving way too much credit 
towards and I couldn't come up with like a good because I kind of wanted something that was a little more modern to be an equivalent. I was thinking like maybe like Bobby Kennedy, that's because Elliot Ness was I think a, a little bit closer, but like some kind of real life person. I don't know who Elliot given, Ness or Elliot Nathan, Ness was the he's from the Untouchables. He was the I think was it the FBI. He was uh, back in the Prohibition era went after the mob. So he was like the, I think he was the head of the FBI. Or... Oh, okay. The name rings a bell because I do watch Drunk History. <laughs> uh, it's Kevin Costner. Um, or was he? Yeah, I can't remember. He was the, unto- he was the head of the Untouchables. And who's, who's yeah. Nathan Hale? Uh, Nathan Hale is I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Um, but yeah, but like, so, but the vibe that, that whoever this character is was that he like became kind of a larger than life, like folk hero. Um, but was real, uh, but you got it, kind of got the sense that people were kind of investing so much into the persona of that thing that he became kind of more, again, like he became a character more than, you know, an actual person. That's, that's what kind of tied it together for me. It was like, like how Quarles got, like for me, it was sort of like my take on the thing now is like, there is no real Quarrel. Like none of them is real. Like Quarrel is not real. Voldemort is not real. Um, this Nathan Hale dude is not real. Like none of them, there is no real or they're all real. Like there is no sincere version of the guy. He's entirely fake. Um, I like that, that take. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and so uh, I believe, so I believe, so a, I don't believe at all that he's that guy, but I also believe that he's that guy. Um, but that that guy is like, is a fiction from the beginning is in the kind of Voldemort's not like they're all sort of real on, in that sense, but, but none of them is any more real than any of the other ones. They're all just sort of this, like they're serving whatever random purpose for this like psycho fuck that Quirrell is. Okay, that's hardcore. So you're saying that Quirrell was uh, this, you know, Captain America with a penchant for not pulling his punches and Voldemort at the same time? Yeah, or so, yeah, that's well, yeah, and it, like, yeah, because we get described something later how like fucked up and evil it is because I, I can't remember like I, I call it I have it in my notes a little bit later but that yeah that at the same time I don't know because yeah I'm just not and we've been like winding up to this that the, like there's going to be some kind of like uh, this doesn't feel because this doesn't feel super I don't know it didn't feel like we're meant to like buy into this like like we're meant to like think we're being fooled but I don't, I don't think we're meant to be fooled by this for very long but um, but yeah that he's so the picture I'm getting because he Quirrell's got this like vision of he's got this like super pompous looking down his nose view of how magical Britain works and you idiots let yourselves be overrun by Voldemort who is me by the way but that he's just got this sort of like you know cat playing with the mouse idea of just kind of like fucking around with his world and that he because he described this a little bit with uh with Harry about like sort of inventing a Voldemort for Harry to defeat that um that he invented, he, I'm, I'm not even sure what, like, which way he was going with it, but like he sets that up as a dynamic that he can like invent an evil Voldemort um, to then invent a hero, Nathan Hale. And maybe it's like, however that plays out, one of them wins, however, whichever one works. But like, that's just a way for him to kind of manip- manipulate everybody around him to kind of get himself into that position of power to do what he wants. Although clearly that didn't work. Like Voldemort got defeated and so I'm not like sure how that plays out, but but it seems like like this like his sort of like master plan with Harry is sort of like his, you know, attempt to at, at whatever this thing was. But yeah, I, I often remember when we get there. But yeah, there's like a description of, like I just got the image of like, oh, he's both sides of this. So and like, like this how fucked up and like 
psycho is that that he's like be like he's creating the atrocities that he's then like you know pounding his fist on the desk you know trying to overcome i like the view from the top of the ladder of paranoia. <laughs> I think it's tight. I mean, um, yeah, I, like the particulars, I have like fucking no idea, but like, <clears throat> so I don't know, what am I, what, what am I feeling fairly solid on? Well, A, like definitely, we've had all kinds of like kind of thematic confirmation. Like, so he's definitely Voldemort. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and if he's definitely Voldemort, then he's not this guy. But I do also, like I'm kind of latching more on the idea that he's just like this continuous like there is no real quarrel. He's like they're all whatever kind of sociopath needs he has for filling, you know, creating whatever identity he needs to get what he needs out of people. <clears throat> kind of like when he's in that when he did whatever he did to Hermione in his like Sith Kermit mode that he just kept trying different versions until he got the result he wanted. That that's kind of like how he's been interacting with the world the whole time. So I just like it feels like this just super like like totally psycho evil thing for him to be like whipping up evil in the world just so he can like then play the guy to you know to fight it back just to like satisfy whatever kind of like fucked up urge he's got just to see how people tick so i uh i think that's awesome i don't know (laughs) uh yeah i think the only other key note is that i forget when harry what when he was born this takes place 1991 harry's 11 so 1980 or 1981 is when Voldemort got killed, and our uh, un our uh, Lieutenant America here, um, <laughs> Captain Britain, <laughs> Lef- Lef- yeah, Captain Lieutenant yeah. Britain got killed or I guess disappeared in 1973. 1970. Um, so Voldemort got a few, you know, better part of a decade to have fun before he died too. So um, then this is where she's like, all right, well, you know, how's all that sound and Quarrel's like, well, you know, I I feel like that guy died years ago, and if he is not dead, I you know he probably doesn't want that announced. So, um, yeah. yeah, I like the like the whole vibe to this is kind of um, it's very kind of like a James Bond supervillain thing to it, where he's just, like he's basically caught like he's admitting to it without admitting to it. Um, they're kind of like speaking in very like thinly veiled. Um, Double entendres, kind of. Well, if the court reporter reads back what I said, I did not exactly confess. Technically, I never actually admitted to it. Um, So then, yeah, I just like I'm kind of like feel. Have we had any indication that would like, at least like keep it possible or definitely prove that he is not also Grindelwald? Like, have we? Is there anything that makes it like that's not possible for it to happen? I just sort of like keep coming back to the like he's just sort of like interchangeably evil, and he's been because he's definitely like so he's older than. Quirrell, and I think we kind of already knew that, but or at least it seemed that way. But um, I'm just kind of latching more to this idea, like, like maybe he's also Merlin. Like, I don't know what the fuck he is, but like that he is so uncommitted to being any given person that he's just kind of he, he like slithers around into being whatever asshole he feels like being in the moment, and God knows how long he's been around. Um, so it would totally fit that he is also Grindelwald and that, but even Grindelwald isn't Grindelwald. Like he's just been like, he's just this kind of like wandering evil. That would be awesome. I guess we don't know what happened to him after Dumbledore defeated him. Yeah. I guess, yeah. What I'm wondering is like, do we know enough about the story of Grindelwald to know one way? Like, is there something we know that be like, okay, no, it couldn't possibly be Grindelwald because X, Y, Z, but because that would be kind of cool. Well, we'll have to see if, uh, 
any of those hypotheses are tested in the coming chapters. Um, so, it basically uh, ends when uh, the the section ends anyway with uh, Madame Bones asking, you know, hey, uh, you know, you, you seem to rest sometimes, oh, which yeah. is like, hey, you you kind of like act like a zombie sometimes, you know. She says, do you need a, a healer's help? You know, I I can't recall reading of such a symptom, but. When one hears of such a thing, one imagines dark wizards fought and terrible curses received. And um, is there anything that can be done for you? And <laughs> the reply: I agreed to teach defense at Hogwarts. Draw your own conclusions, madam. I am missing my classes, of which there are not many left. I would return to Hogwarts now. Yeah, I like and, how he sort of like lets that he like lets her believe that it's like you know he's made these great sacrifices and my work is very important. I have to get back to it. Well, and the thing is, too, because, you know, it's because he accepted the position to teach defense. He knows he's not going to make it through the year because no one has for the last 50 <laughs> years. Right. So, like it, he seems to be implying. Oh, to my like, reading, oh, I know I'm dying, so I might as well get some good out of it. Right. They just diagnosed me with stage four magic cancer. So <laughs> I figured I might as well burn my last year at Hogwarts. Oh, yeah. One little thing we skipped over, though. Is, so this story of... I, I hope we're going to get a name for this guy so I can just stop calling him like that guy or because Nathan Hale doesn't seem... Bobby Canning? Elliot Ness. Let's call him Elliot Ness. Um, that, like, part of that story... And I was, like, I had to, As I was going back and looking again, like, the this window that he was around was only, like, a, few, like a couple of years, two or three years. Like, he disappears, um, and then he, like, comes back and two or three years of being Elliot Ness, and then he disappears again. Um, but, like, in that point so i guess his like big sort of like his coming out party was that he um wasted a few death eaters that were trying to kidnap what kidnap the daughter of the minister of magic or something like back in 1970 um so he's you know big superhero guy for having done that but he did it with a killing curse but they absolved him of it because he used it for good um which sort of like gives him this whole like bad boy vibe um but then in retribution for that, though, his entire family was murdered by the Death Eaters. <clears throat> so it's like he's got this like very over-the-top, you know, hero of the nation uh, story to him of being both like um, edgily powerful. Like he's not just powerful, but he did it like with a forbidden curse, but he did it for the right reasons. So he's got like a vigilante vibe to him. Um, and then like the tragic story of his, you know, family being killed. So he's got sort of all of these very theatrical elements to his story and then he poof disappears um so and that's sort of like work for me too is like he's it's very he's very much a character um like a constructed thing um that fits into it so it did totally like it just fits this like image i have of quarrel is just this total psycho trying to manipulate people for his own weird whatever you know reasons that are very um cruel if needed and he does not care um i like that read and and like you said the error of like story about him kind of is reminiscent yeah. of the uh the end of the wisengamot trial where it's like the you know the third person sort of everyone's viewing things through the lens of of you know the 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 magisterium of legend and yeah. um you know this guy's cliff notes biography looks a lot like dumbledore's or harry's right where you know, he's he's this mysterious hero who does all these awesome things. And, like, that's how Harry imagines his autobiog autobiography will be abridged, too, right? But at the very least, Harry's autobiog autobiography starts with him 
you know, mysteriously destroying the the Dark Lord who was ravaging the country. And so, like, if you're sitting in the cell, his his little checklist would look kind of similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's totally... Uh, it, so, like, the, that kind of storybook presentation of his his history makes sense there. Yeah. And it totally fits with, like, Quarles totally, like, the contempt Quarrel has for the human race or for the wizard race um, that that he sees, like, you know, mere mortals and society at large as this, you know, easily manipulated thing. Um, and so he, in almost sort of a, like, an arrogantly lazy, like, you know, it's a, it's a too over-the-top um, story, uh, but that, like, the level of, like, his his expectations of humanity are so low that it's almost like intentionally theatrical and unbelievable because that's kind of the level of what he, he thinks, you know, wizarding kind, uh, will rise to that, you know, you just have to feed them the story they want and they'll follow along. Well, if he is making it up, you know, they did. So, um, they, they, they did, you know, totally buy the story. I think the other thing is like the confounding factors, like he had the family and his grandma was on the, the, whatever wizen gamut when uh he was on trial for using the killing curse and so like this person has some history that's tied to real people it seems like yeah it's, but yeah so i mean yeah i could so i guess yeah and that is like a fair like that would be fairly sort of entrenched yeah so then i could see like you know well no so the story we do get though is that uh yeah because he like went off to what albania or something and then like disappeared for 20 it seems like he goes through a couple times just disappearing for decades at a time um but that he went to was it albania or something he went to uh non-specific eastern european country um like went there you know, after graduating hogwarts went to albania nobody heard from him for a number of years and then came back. So that maybe that was like, okay, there really was whoever, you know, there, there really was a, uh, the last scion of the house of Ness. <laughs> but, uh, but that, that, yeah, that guy got killed and got taken over by, you know, like Quirrell saw, okay, this is a convenient place to, you know, invent a character. Although that guy is, you know, other than just being like in the right place, society wise, like, oh, he's, you know, the, inheritor for to a powerful old noble house like he's otherwise a blank slate if that's what Quirrell did if he just like murdered the guy and took over his identity then he's kind of like the perfect empty vessel for like pouring whatever story he wants into him because he's in the right position in society but otherwise isn't committed to being any kind of particular person so Quirrell can kind of like turn him into you know savior of humanity against the evil Voldemort dude I'm loving this so much. I want to listen to you and Matt I. Moody do a podcast where you solve mysteries. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do that. Yeah, because he's like, I can't remember, but because they get like, okay, born in such and such and then graduated from Hogwarts and blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, he just kind of like goes off to, I think it was Albania or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then just disappears. So he's like gone. So yeah, that's, I mean, I hadn't thought about this now, but now as we're saying like, like, yeah, so there was whoever this, there was a real version of whoever this was. And he went off and got stabby stabbed by Murder Murderface, um, who then like took over his identity. Although you know, I could even just see it as like you know, Quirrell just hears that like, you know, rich entitled kid you know got in a bar fight and got stabbed and killed and thinks that okay, well that's a convenient identity for me to take over. Um, I love it. I think um, it's great. I want to keep indulging this, but we're only <laughs> halfway through this chapter and we're an hour and a half in, so uh, I want to I want to keep going right. a little bit. Um, 
Yeah, so, but, but, but wrap up any threads you had. I don't want to cut you off. I just um, no, I think that's kind of it. And I was all stoked that we started relatively early, and it seems like we're going to finish late anyway. <laughs> um, oh, it's, yeah. So we do get here get to hear. There's a couple important things. So because um, Bones asks him, well, like, well, then how the hell, like, if you're whoever, if you're Elliot Ness, um, how is it that you're? Um, inside Hogwarts, we basically get whatever the significant plot uh, importance is that uh, that that he got that Dumbledore basically grandfathered him into the Hogwarts security system um, and just said, "This guy right here is the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. Don't worry about who he is." <laughs> it's like, don't worry, don't worry. It's totally fine. Definitely not Voldemort. What um, I like about that is it makes me think of this uh, Dimitri Martin joke where. Um, you know, you introduce somebody, hey, I'm Steven, this is Brian. And you gesture to Brian standing, I'm gesturing with my right hand. And like, that's not how you talk about people. Be like, this, this thing here, waving your hand at Brian generally, this, this is Brian, right? Like, that's, that's a uh-huh. weird way to address people. Uh-huh. Demetri Martin does it better than I do, but he makes, he makes <laughs> that funny. Uh, this, this thing over here, this, this is the defense professor. Just, just shut up. This, and That right there. Like, when I say defense professor from now on, I'm referring to the thing inside the circle. It's like, how, how do you give his admin rights or whatever permissions <laughs> the, the, the professor gets without a real username? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, all right. Well, yeah, he's, that's, he's the classical, like, uh, uh, Quirrell pulled off the elevation of privileges uh, exploit. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I get all the, I get all the permissions. Um, but yeah, it is like sort of a big explain, like, okay, how the fuck is it that like Voldemort's just like, stepping around inside the halls of Hogwarts and nobody's noticed. It's like, oh, because Dumbledore handed him the uh, skeleton key. There was some discussion on this in the uh, Discord um, a few weeks ago when Dumbledore took the map from the Weasleys. Yeah, I was wondering about that. And so I like the, the this, this origin story for the map better than the canon one, which was in, was in canon that was invented by a couple of, you know, uh, rambunctious 14-year-olds. Having it in this one just throw away line that it was probably part of the original Hogwarts security system makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, it can identify um, whatever, who's in it. And then there's, like, all this deliberation on how it decides who's in it. Like, what if you change your name? What if you have a legal name change, etc.? Um, which I've given a lot of thought to because how would I survive the Death Note if Death Note was real? Um, it's a anime slash manga that everyone should read slash watch. And uh, so... You basically like write someone's your name, name. I know you die, yeah. Exactly. So I'm like, all right, well, how would I beat that? Uh, so all this name shenanigans is something I'd given a lot of thought to. So I was having fun at that conversation, whatever, a month ago. And uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, so, like, if if Hogwarts needs, like, so Hogwarts gets to know who you are somehow. And so, like, presumably Dumbledore could touch his wand, since he's the headmaster, he could touch his wand to a random adult or even random person, whatever, and say, this is the defense professor. This is the potions professor, whatever. This is the mm-hmm. groundskeeper, et cetera. So like Hogwarts knows all of those roles and probably has permissions for all of them. Right. <laughs> like I, so like I imagine like it's probably not a charm set on the books uh, per se for like the restricted section. Um, it's probably just like, it's unless crazy. you have read privileges real. on these books, they scream or whatever. Yeah. Right. They put, they, he put Quirrell in the wheel group. In the wheel yeah. group? Wheel. Um, I'm more of a Linux nerd than you. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, Wheel's I, like I, the admin group. I'm a, I'm a modern-day developer. I don't know. I, I don't work with Linux that much. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I just earned some nerd points with our listeners, so that's good. 
You did. At least a handful of people will give you points and take them away from me for not being able to follow that. So, All right. Hermione wakes up for the third time, and uh, Professor Flitwick is standing there shaking her shoulder and offering her a tray of food. And then um, apparently she missed dinner, and then I'm, I'm not trying to rush through this. I'm just trying to move this along. So um, basically she goes out, and Harry is sitting there. He's like, I wasn't allowed inside, otherwise I'd have been there. I'm sorry. And... Um, I did like this bit because uh, he says, I did a quick skim through my psychology textbooks to see what it said about post-traumatic stress disorder. Old books said you should talk uh, about the experience immediately afterwards to the counselor. The newer research says that when they actually ran experiments, it turns out that talking about it immediately afterward made it worse. Apparently, what you really ought to do is run with your mind's natural impulse to repress the memories and just not think about it for a while. Which I wanted to double check because uh, then she also goes on to talk about Ash's conformity experiment mm-hmm. in a minute. And I, I don't know how much pop science I've failed to like run this through the did this replicate filter throughout the book, but I meant to do that from the top. So I've done that for a handful <laughs> from the beginning. But um, I asked our own local resident psychologist, uh, Daniel, who's actually going to join us on the retro for next episode, um, whether or not Ash's conformity experiment uh, replicated and whether or not this was true on PTSD. And apparently, like... You know, you can't do large randomized trials on PTSD people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do remember reading something about when they interviewed people after 9-11. Uh, the ones who didn't go to a counselor seemed less stressed. And so whether or not they went to a counselor because they were more stressed to begin with, you know, there's confounding factors. But you can't exactly, like, do an experimental procedure where you traumatize a bunch of people and then let some of them talk to a counselor, right? Um, intentionally give them the shitty counselor. Yeah, the, the, the placebo counselor. Um <laughs> So uh, anyway, apparently the current state of the research is that uh, that is a Harry's uh, rendition here seems to be a valid way. That's not to say don't talk to a counselor if you feel like you need to talk to one. But that seems like something actually worth pointing out. And Daniel was nice enough to point out that apparently playing video games that involve a lot of spatial reasoning, um, like Tetris was uh, one of the games that they tested, seems to help a lot, too. Mm And I was all stoked because that vi- that was a scientific justification for vindicating my uh, playing video games when I'm stressed. Of course, I also play video games when I'm not stressed. So, uh, my mom actually, my mom's a psychologist, you know, a now very old psychologist, but uh, she used to be involved. She did a lot. It was um, so I'm from Los Angeles, so she did a lot of like earthquake preparedness stuff with the Red Cross and was involved with like some of the like post trauma counseling stuff, largely around earthquakes, but like, basically like making kids feel safe again after an earthquake and part of that was so it's like yeah throw them all at counselors but like part of what a good counselor would do is like safely walk them through the process of not needing to talk about it um they just sort of like go wherever they're they're at so it's not almost like it's not so much like oh do or do not go to a counselor but it's like do or do not force yourself to talk about what you're not yet ready to talk about so like that's part of their like part of what the counselors do is like identify like where is that kid at and do they need to be one of the ones that's talking about it? Or do they need to be left the fuck alone? Or like find, you know, yeah, they don't need to talk about it, but the kid needs to be uh, made to feel that things are safe and consistent. So how do we like give that, put, you know, give the kid the environment they need to feel safe again without also like, you know, trying to stick a, you know, forceps into their brain and make them talk about everything. But, so. <laughs> I like that. I have to, I'm contractually obligated. Daniel said that I could include that. As he said, quote, as long as you mention that to the best of my knowledge, it replicates decently well, though there are varying circumstances which can greatly diminish the effect. Oh, that was for Ash's conformity experiment. 
Um, he was less sure, but he did send me a paper that I didn't read on uh, the Tetris coping mechanism. Um, he sent it right as wrapping up work and going to make a dinner and then sit down and do this. So um, anyway, yes. And I, I think that's kind of cool with your own uh, anecdote slash whatever Thing. data contribution. My vocabulary is failing my, me, my which is not a good thing because we're still so early in the in the episode. Um, but like the quick, the, like the thing I liked, um, and then Harry's other like the other thing he says to Hermione a little, a little bit right after this, that was just like Harry's. Um, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't waiting when you woke up. Um, that you know, I suppose I should be out there trying to run damage control and public relations, but honestly, I've never been good at that. I just end up speaking sharply at people. Like Harry shifted back to being this sort of very um, like selfless kind of humble guy. Like he's very sincerely concerned about Hermione. And, and then I like just this, like the, his very cute way, like all of that, like talking about the experiment and stuff was just his, like and Hermione, you know, sees it for what it is. The, like this long drawn out nerd way of saying like, you know what, you don't need to talk about it if you don't want to, like I'm here for you, but we don't have to get into it if you don't want to. And it was sort of a very like sweet kind of, and it reminded me a lot of the, the other time where they were just kind of like bonding by just like, you know, flipping through books in the library and just reading. Cause like, that's their thing. And so he was sort of like meeting her where she is. Um, so it was this sort of like, you know, I am your friend. I am here for you thing. Um, yeah, no, I, so. I love that. And it, you're right. It, it definitely has their, their just cute wavelength. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's just sort of like a way of like reconnecting. Like, this is a thing we have in common. This is like, I remember this is you, this is me. Um, like we're going to be okay. I was trying to wait. I think I made all my legal references earlier, but we're also having Justin on for the next retro. I was going to find a way, like when you're saying legalese or something like that earlier. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, <clears throat> bring our lawyer to the. We are bringing our lawyer. Bring our podcast. lawyer to the podcast. And the fun thing about Justin is that this is his first time reading it, so he's going to be sitting on know, your side of the table. Cool. I know. That'd yeah. Interesting. I was really I, like it was it was awesome when it worked out to be where we happen to know somebody else yeah. who. Like, cause everybody really, I don't know if I, I, I'm curious what the actual numbers are. I strongly suspect that almost every listener has read the book already. Um, so uh, getting, like getting someone on who hadn't like read it before yeah, was a challenge. Okay. Yeah. And Justin's been going all the show. Like he follows, it's not just that like, oh, he hasn't finished it yet, but he's like following along with us. Like, so he's basically reading at the same pace that I am. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. He's stopping at the chapters and, and yeah. doing it with the podcast. Justin's cool. Yeah. People we play. Uh, next week. He, he plays uh, Risk with us on the alternate Fridays where we're not otherwise busy. So we know him real life. Oh, I also, let me find the exact quote that I had for his disclaimer here. He had said, um, make sure to let everyone know how handsome I am. So wait, <laughs> if he had said, make sure to he, let he everyone really know how handsome. Kind of handsome that, that lends itself to podcasting. I know, right? Um, if you had said, make sure you let everyone know how handsome you think I am, I would have gone on at great length about how <laughs> handsome I think he is, but that's not what he said to do. So he just said to tell everyone I think he's handsome or that he, he said that whatever he just said. So sorry, I got distracted. Um, I think right now is when I should be using a phrase like pretty mouth. <laughs> I think, the, I don't think <laughs> there's ever a time to use that phrase. Yes. All right. So Hermione basically finally croaks out. Or it doesn't. She says it should have come out as a croak, but it didn't. How bad is it? And it's bad. This is this. Yeah, I mean, it's bad if you don't want to be seen by the entire world as a murderer. Um, but otherwise, it's good. 
<laughs> you know. And this and this was the reason for bringing up the conformity experiment was <clears throat> like Harry's explaining to her that um, well, no, everybody need the social um, pressures going on is that everybody has to get on the same page, and the only like plausible way for everybody to be on the same page is to go along with the story that you're a murderer. So everybody thinks you're a murderer, and that's just the way it is. And <clears throat> I kind of like I was like the way Harry said it, he sort of like slipped back into um, obnoxious. I'm smarter than all of you speak, but I think I still I think like the intent behind it was Harry was just that he was trying to let Hermione know this doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to the validity of people's belief that you are a attempted murderer. Um, it's just that this is what every, you know, a, a whole school full of students is going to have to all line up with the same idea. And this is the one that there's no way they could line up on any other opinion of you other than this. And so that's just the way it's going to be, but it doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean you did it just because it just, just because everybody thinks you did it doesn't mean you did it. Um, and so it's like bringing up that, uh, conformity idea is like his way of like telling her like, no, it's just because there's this thing going on with, this is how people interact with each other. And that's the reason why not because of the, of how convincing it is. Yeah. And he's got his, his nice way of putting it, which is, uh, do you, do you want to read the, the quote or not? Or do you want uh, me to? The, no, you go for it. <clears throat> Hermione, you've told me lots of times that I look down too much on other people. But if I expect too much of them, if I expect people to get things right, I really would hate them then. Idealism aside, Hogwarts students don't actually know enough cognitive science to take responsibility for how their own minds work. It's not their fault they're crazy. Which is, oh, Harry, it, it's, like used, a, it's like a nice again. thought couched in... <laughs> That's uh, the worst possible way you could state that nice thought. Let's so, see. and what, the only... I'll say the only part that I draw contention with is that it's not that they don't know, that they don't know enough cognitive science to take responsibility for their own minds. It's that they're children. <laughs> there you go. And so I, like, that was the part I, that like, I, rubbed I, me the most the wrong way. It's like, oh, because I am Mister Enlightened, I clearly do not fall for these problems because I know cognitive science. And maybe that's the trick to like not thinking like a child. Maybe if if I'm if I, if I squint, but I'd say it's it's. They don't take responsibility for how the minds work because they're dumb little kids. They're and, dumb. like, they're, they're smart little kids, whatever, but they're dumb because they're kids. Yeah. And so I'm not saying all kids are dumb and should be dismissed and all that stuff. But what I'm saying is that, like, uh, certainly when I was a child and everybody I knew, like, I mean, speaking of conformity, like, I pretended to like music my classmates liked. I uh, pretended to enjoy movies they liked. I laughed at their stupid jokes. Like, conformity is the name of the game when you're a child. Mm-hmm. And... Like the just just the the complete lack of like ownership of your decisions and thoughts. You know, if you're a determinist like me, you don't really have that anyway. But you have a different version of it than you don't have when you're a kid, which is like you're just responding to things around. Like you're not you're barely self-aware. You know, yeah. and so like that's why they're crazy. It's not because they they didn't take they didn't read enough cog side books. It's because <laughs> they it's because they're kids. Yeah. But you, well, you I mean, some, it would, it some, would be equal. It doesn't even matter. Like any random group of people would, would do the same thing. Yeah, but like as an adult, you know, whether you learned about conformity, you know, the the psychological experiments on conform, conformity or not, like you become aware of that phenomena with or without a name as you age. Like if you're thirty and you're you're conforming just like you were when you're eleven, you know, then it's like okay, this person's probably you know, then then Harry might not be 
uh, besmirched for saying that person's kind of dumb um, or has whatever good reasons. You get what I'm saying? But my point is, is that like y- you, you grow out a lot out of a lot of these thought habits, whether or not you read cognitive science books. No, yeah, and the, <clears throat> what rubbed me the most, or you don't grow, you don't grow out of them by telling yourself how much you grew out of them. <laughs> yeah, that was the part. I was like, oh, they're not, they're not aware of cognitive science. I'm like, even being aware of it, like you're still doing it. That's like the thing I try to tell myself. Like, I am doing, I am, in spite of trying to be hyper aware of it, I am full of shit about things. I'm looking right at and wondering if am I full of shit about that thing? Telling myself I'm not, but I am. <clears throat> and the problem is, it's like three out of the five things, and you don't know which three. <laughs> well, and there, there's also the fact that like, uh, oh, I had something for this, and I, I lost my train of thought. Um, like, you can, what was the thing that you said that kicked me off? That you you don't uh, get smarter by saying that you've grown out, outgrown them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there was a joke about that kind of earlier in the book where, like, all the kids are speculating at the dinner table or something, and the handful of students there from the Chaos Legion were like, well, at least we're all perfectly sane, right? <laughs> and... I don't know if these were perfectly or not, but it's kind of a joke because it's like, yeah, you guys have in, you guys have some insight. It doesn't. That's not what it takes to make you better. Getting better is actually harder than just having the insight. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I really feel like I think like the uh, the motivation behind this was not to position himself as being way more enlightened than the rest of the class. It was to just tell Hermione like, don't like it doesn't mean anything that they all think this. This is like this phenomenon that happens in groups of people is the reason why they think this. Um, it came out sounding way more like, oh, I'm way more enlightened than all of these ignorant fucks. But I don't think I don't think that was the point in bringing that up. No, I liked your paraphrasing more, which was, you know, people, you, me, everyone, just go with the herd. It doesn't mean what they say about you is true. Well, yeah. I, I think that he's saying that I, I do think that he's saying that he doesn't go with the herd. Um, yeah. And, was, you know. <laughs> Uh, and probably Hermione not Hermione doesn't either, right? Like, because I mean, she didn't. You know, the herd doesn't form a group of heroines to fight bullies. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, that's a, like it's and it's sort of like not relevant to the to the point he's making. But like, you do maybe like in this this is not among the instances in which you are going along with the herd, but we all do. Like, that's what we do. Oh um, yeah, certainly in certain some situations. Yeah. You know, I still laugh at my manager's bad jokes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, that's not quite going along with the herd as much as it is like doing what I feel like I'm supposed to do to keep my boss happy and thus stay employed. But um, anyway. So, yeah. So that. And then also we end this little section with um, Harry letting Hermione know that Ron thinks she's awesome now because Ron thinks uh, she tried to murder Draco. So he now approves. Right. That's that's the <laughs> that's another beat that I just love about this. Um, Oh, and Ron Weasley came up to me looking very serious and told me that if I saw you first, I should tell you that he's very sorry for having thought badly of you, and he'll never speak ill of you again. No, Ron mer- believes I'm innocent? Well, not innocent per se. <laughs> not so many words. He, he, he doesn't think that. It's more he's just stoked that you, uh, that you tried to kill Lord, uh, uh, Draco Malfoy. You have good taste in your murder victims. Oh, man. So we get a very brief cut to the common room where she gets in there. No one's looking at her because they're all a bunch of assholes slash conformists slash don't know enough cognitive science. <laughs> and, um, you know, it it would be tough to be the one person to stand up and give Hermione a hug and say, I'm so sorry this happened to you because all your classmates are going to throw you in the same bucket as her, which is uh-huh. the, you know, the shunned outcast and being kicked out of the herd is very scary. So. It helps that you're the boy who lived. So. Well, so, he, I mean, he he's above yeah. that, kind of like yeah. how Dumbledore is above the status games in the wisdom gamut, right? Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, Harry could do whatever the fuck he wants because he's, you know, he's been weird since day one. But mm-hmm. if, uh, if... But yeah, nobody else can... Yeah, yeah the, like, there's a there's now a very high tax on being nice to Hermione. Yeah. So, so then she's just like, all right, well, I'm going to go upstairs. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can't go to bed because there might be classmates there. And then she just goes out, like, onto some cool side outdoor balcony on the tower that apparently you just get when you go to Hogwarts, sure. which I mean, is... It's got, it's got good lighting and a wind machine. The, the architecture of Hogwarts makes me almost <laughs> as jealous of, as the magic. So she's out on this dope-ass balcony. And... She gets up from her four-poster bed and walks out onto her private balcony. <laughs> so, um, like, I think... Which it's then all kinds of creepy, though. So then, like, Quirrell shows up being all stalker. And, like, how does that work that the, like, male teacher is up in the girl's part of the dorm at night just because reasons... Well, because it's not the girl's dorm. She goes, it says she went somewhere else. Um, Oh, no, it is in the dorms, but it's a parapet guarding the small balcony where she ducked out of the stairwell before she got to the dorm. Still, I'm thinking, if if there were lawyers present, there would be rules about this by now, I would think. There would be rules about how did he at least get through the common room to walk up there and go bugger. It's not about about like whether he's like capable. It's like, how is that cool? Like, that's, this is not cool. You're not allowed to do this. Oh, yeah. Not cool at all. If you remember from the uh, the first time we met Dumbledore, he apparently snuck into Lily Potter's uh, oh, that's right. bedroom when she was sleeping too. So maybe if you're a cool, secret, ancient, badass wizard, it's just one of the rules. You got to sneak into kids' bedrooms. Sure, sure. So anyway, I I like how he comes out. He's leaning against the doorway, and like all she can see is the silhouette. And then he like is moving forward, and she's just like, "Are you here to kill me?" And then. He steps forward, raising one hand slowly and deliberately as though to push her off the tower. <laughs> and she casts Stupefy at him. And like a badass, he catches it with his hand and is just sitting there making a hissing sound and lights up his face. Yeah, um, like it's like even more. Yeah, it's another one of those flexes where it's not like he doesn't block it or whatever. He like goes out of his way because he, he like stares at it for a while just to kind of play with it. Yeah, and he uh, it just it paints a cool picture too because like he's silhouetted by the open door behind him and just like this red glow on his face yeah. are the only sources of light. And then he just like flicks it away. Pew! 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 So let's see then. Um, so yeah, they start had... talking about it, and Quirrell. So she's like, "Oh, they don't, you know, they all think I was set up." And Quirrell's like, "Oh yeah, it totally looks like you were set up," um, which is just kind of another cool, another flex where like Quirrell's totally willing to just play along with, you know, he's he's poking the holes in his own, you know, conspiracy. He's like, oh, yeah, that's not believable at all. Clearly you were set up. I wonder who that could have been. <laughs> Amateur. Um, yeah, so it's like this like extra metal level of like, you know, swagger confidence in what he's pulling off. That He's like, okay, yeah, cool. We'll just like play along with, you know, pointing out all the faults in this plan that is mine. Quirrell plays the game at one level higher than you. That's right. Yeah, so Meta is his middle name. <laughs> Quirrell, Meta... Wait, Quirinus, Meta Quirrell? Doesn't quite roll. No. Yeah. So then we get, we do sort of get, I didn't, it wasn't until like went back this the second time, it didn't really connect this. So then he starts talking to Hermione, like they get on the whole subject of like heroes and he talks to her about how, oh, he used to be a hero. Um, And I should have, like it didn't, I didn't quite connect it to his Elliot Ness thing from immediately before, but he's sort of like, now he's like kind of all in on, on playing up this, this idea of oh I used to be a hero, um, and so and he talks about how like basically like, um, 
wizarding society was, you know, totally cool, you know, just surrendering responsibility for anything over to him um, so that they can then also bitch about the quality of, uh, of his work while not, you know, contributing anything to it. Um, and I like how this whole section starts. He says, I was going to be a hero once. Can you believe that, Miss Granger? <laughs> no. Thank you again, Miss Granger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because he's like, well, thanks for not pretending to like me. At least, you know, right. Better than... There's just like, there's just no beat. She doesn't yeah. even, she's not polite. Can you believe that? No, not not yeah. for a second, man. Oh, yeah. I and mean, then here's where he does, like, the way he's describing the Dark Wizard uh, capitalized. Uh, that's what made me think about, like, oh, he's both of these. And then, like, how fucked up is that? But um, that, yeah, because he talks about how. Like, the supposed good guys just did nothing but, like, sit back and in a very sort of watchman way, just kind of, like, hand over responsibility for being a grown-up over to, um, you know, hero, Mr. Hero Dude. Um, And, like, how sort of lazy the good guys were, um, but how, like, the opposite for Voldemort, he just calls him the Dark Wizard, um, that the opposite was totally not the case, he says. And it was the strangest thing, the Dark Wizard, that man's dread nemesis, why those who served him leapt eagerly to their tasks. The dark wizard grew crueler toward his followers and they followed him all the more. Um, and so this is again, he's just sort of like, he's kind of communicating his like contempt for society. He's like, okay, they're all just a bunch of idiots that'll follow anybody, but they won't really do anything useful unless it's for shitty purposes. And then they'll totally get in line as long as you, you know, are cruel and fearful and fear inducing to your followers. They'll, they'll get in line. Um, and presumably tell them you'll whatever wipe out the mudbloods or whatever yeah, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And I, so it, it was this, but when, as he's describing this, because especially because he's also like he's kind of giving that same sort of like faux um, disgust with the like evil on the other side, um, the way he was like talking about the, kind of like the contempt he had for magical Britain and, and how easily they allowed fifty Death Eaters to nearly overthrow magical Britain. Um, but then, yeah, like seeing this and being like, oh, he's like, he's both of those people at the same time. Like that, this is what like made it seem like, oh, this is so fucked up. And that like how totally insincere really both of those sides are. He's like not even whatever he's, you know, mouthing off about Voldemort. It's like, that's not even it. He's just like, um, you know, he's just poking people, getting them to do what he wants. Um, like neither side of that equation is sincere. Um, yeah, that would, that's, uh, Again, running with <laughs> running with that, like Let's just that, pretend that, that I'm this, right, just for the sake of argument. No, I am, and so running with that, that is like hilariously awesome. I know, yeah, and it's so like, yeah, and it just totally fits the whole like that like that same sort of contempt for people thing. Like, oh, you know, you all are just such fucking lemmings. I can do anything I want, and I'll even play both sides of this. Um, what we don't know is like really like where was he trying to go with this? Because even. Because uh, any because the way he talks about ambition, which seems like this very sort of uh, sounds important but ultimately empty idea he has, but like the idea of oh he just wants to be the Führer of England seems even by his standards to be kind of you know small potatoes that um, so I don't know like I don't feel like I have a sense of what was he really up to like it, okay the, it was this weird manipulation game but it seems like just like ruling over magical Britain like would bore him. Um, I I get the impression he'd be bored too, yeah. and so if I'm like, running, I'm running with your thing, when he was giving his uh, Christmas speech, Harry inferred something that I get I get the impression was just meant for him because there's no way anyone else to make this connection, 
He had said that if some still greater enemy attacked us, then only a magic, a united magical world could stop it. And he's talking, I, I, Harry assumed that he was talking about uh, a war between muggles and wizards. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I guess even then too, ruling the world isn't all that much more interesting than ruling magical Britain. That would still be super boring. Yeah. Like that's always, you know, the, there, there's kind of like a, a, a question that comes up once in a while from like, well, if rationalists are so good at achieving their goals, why aren't they, why, why don't they rule the world? And it's like, cause like the, the lazy answer is like, that sounds really boring. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's just a lot of looking over your shoulder waiting to be shot. Right. Uh, you know, the, the real answer is that it's hard and probably outside the scope of any one person to do without a, you know, a lot of hard work. Maybe it, it's totally doable. People have, well, not taken over the world, but taken over large parts of it in the last century. Um, I think it's my, my real answer is that they're focusing on more important things than taking over the world. Um, uh, so it, it takes probably more than rationality. It takes like political skill. Which if your goal, I mean, if, if you, if you encompass rationality as like just the, uh, the instrumental ability to achieve your goals, then part of that will be learning to be political. You know, being, being a rationalist doesn't mean being Spock. It means being good. Uh, like good at what you're doing, maybe, or you know, good at achieving your ends. Well, then you have to. Well, then where are these people? That would be the question. It's not like there's a, you know, this. Oh, this like the ones I'm thinking of are like the ones who start like institutes to, uh, you know, build artificial intelligences which could reshape the entire future of the human species, or um, building or starting other institutes to uh, investigate and prepare for other end of world scenarios, like the future of life. Uh, or the Future of Humanity Institute, um, or is the Future of Life Institute. Those might be two separate kind of, things. Or kind, of a, them. kind of a hard sell to me to say that the reason that the uh, the reason that the world isn't ruled by rationalists is because the rationalists don't feel like ruling the world. Doesn't well, the, the other thing is that it might take more than like 15 years, which is how old this movement is. So, I mean, at, at longest, 15, it's closer to 10 years old. And taking over the world might take more than 10 years. For all we know, there's people working on this. If we make it, if we make it another fifty years, and there's no rationalist ruling the world, then I'll take that as as evidence that it's not the only tool you need to take over the world. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think take, I think you guys would be like, oh, you want to put some money on that? But yeah, yeah it's ten bucks. Uh, if ten by bucks, 2060 but... there isn't a rationalist ruler of a nation, I'll give you ten bucks. All right. Deal. Done. Wait, you, you know what? Let's let's make nods. this right. Let's I'll do I'll it. Give you three empanadas. All right. Six my six empanadas to your three empanadas. All right, now it's now so it's a bet. A, that's a lot of empanadas. Someone write this down. Okay, twenty sixty January first. All right. Um, what else didn't we cover here? He's he's basically selling her like on the you know back when I was doing the hero thing, people sucked and wouldn't help, and they were, uh, you know, just it it seemed I liked it. there was a line in here somewhere about how thinking that I I used to think myself already cynical. And yet it turned out that people acting in their self-interest wasn't cynical at all, but sheerest optimism. <laughs> and so what did yeah, I do yeah. instead? Well, I went off and did something more interesting, yeah, or I, I found stopped, more pleasant. I stopped trying to be a hero and went off to do something I found more pleasant. And yeah, Hermione's like, like, that's that. terrible. And he's like, oh, come on. Most people don't even try to be heroes in the first place. That's not fair. And she's kind of kind of wrestles with that for a minute without finding a good resolution. Um and then instead of pushing her off the balcony, he's trying to push her to go to Bobaton. Yeah, like it's sort of like shifted and you're like, oh, this whole like, oh, let me talk to you about being a hero was just like a 
you know, a way to bullshit his way into, you know, this is why you should stop being a hero because it sucks and it's lame. You should totally go to Bobaton because France is awesome. <laughs> and I'll, and then it was a weird, it, it sort of like added like another uh, layer of creepy onto it too because because uh, then he does like try to sell it, sell her on it and be like, oh, yeah, you should go there. Oh, and I'll totally make sure that you get there safely. And then she decides, oh, I think like even before that, <clears throat> she's like, oh, wait a minute, he's trying to con me into going. And so she she like shifts into like, oh, this guy is my enemy and is trying to manipulate me. He immediately can tell that she's done that. Um, and so he's like, okay, fine. Even if you think my enemy's like, I will guarantee you, guarantee you in a very public way that would get me in trouble if I uh, reneged to get you safely to Bogotan. And she's like, eh. I mean, she doesn't say no, but she's b- being very noncommittal to it. Um, so then he tries, uh, I heard this term, the takeaway clothes. It's like a sales term. Like it, um, he's like, oh, but you better do it. Like, what does he give her? Like one day or something. Um, like tonight. Yeah, tonight. Yeah, you have to tell me right now or we can't, or I couldn't possibly do it. So it was, and it's pretty like thinly lame uh, the, try to push. Like it's a very unconvincing sell. The takeaway clothes is covered in the chapter on scarcity in Robert Cialdini's Influence, Science and Practice. Mm-hmm. And it's a technique that whenever it's employed against me, even if it seems like it's a really good deal, I pass it up immediately just oh, out yeah. of reflex. And like, oh, no, look, if you sign up now, you get two years of internet for 40 bucks or whatever. And I'm like, no, sorry, I'm not signing up because you put a clock on it. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if you gave me a day to go off and think about this, I'm not signing up with you here now at the mall because you told me that there's a clock on it. Um, so I have a, an immediate reflex, and I think Hermione's doing exactly the right thing, that to have a heuristic that, no, I will not make decisions under pressure like this because fuck you. Um, and that is such a tool of hucksters that it, you know, even if it is a good deal and you missed a good deal, it's a, I think it's a good heuristic to have. Yeah. Um, is it, is it called, because more often like, than not. I'd heard that term takeaway clothes, like not in any kind of like rationalist context. Is that, is, is it called that? Um, I can't remember if he uses the word takeaway clothes in, I think it's chapter six, scarcity. Um, I can't remember if he uses the the word in there or not, but I immediately recognized the technique from that. Um, And the guy was in sales, so, or now he just sells his books, but, uh, (laughs) and his talks on his books, but he's, uh, he's successful at it. So he he knows that he knows the game. If he didn't call it takeaway clothes, I'm not sure if that was uh, his thing. And Cialdini is not like, in the rationalist circle, but his, his book I think is, is required reading just for really for everybody. I've given this book out to half a dozen people. Um, the, I don't know if it still is, but the fourth edition was a penny on Amazon for years. (laughs) So, I mean, you you can buy this on the crazy cheap and it is like, it's the, it's a, it's written. It's like defense against the dark arts. Um, the, these are the techniques that hucksters will try and use on you. And when you read this book, you'll find that these sorts of, of, of shill tactics are way more common than you realized, and then you're prepared to fight against them, which is great. So I recommend everyone read that book. Um, there was a line there that I liked. Oh, this was the thing that kind of confirmed that the whatever Hermione said in the Wisdom Gamut wasn't a marriage whatever proposal, uh-huh. which is nice because it made that, you know, made their... Uh, it, it makes the Wizarding World's marriage thing, if that was the marriage thing, a lot less disgusting. Um, <laughs> apparently he's sworn, or she swore to be like, what was the word? Um, that, whatever, you are now the a his servant in the eyes of Britain and, his law, and its laws or something. Um, mm. So it's like a, 
So she she took the servant's oath, not the uh, right. the marriage oath, which I just liked because it leaves room for the servant's oath to be a lot less, or the marriage oath to be you know more um, equal. <laughs> Meaningful, yeah. She's his servant until he gives her an article of clothing. Right. You can wear this this potato potato sack. <laughs> it's a sock, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, no, but they wore potato sacks before he got uh, the sock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so it doesn't work. And then, like, uh, Quirrell just sort of, like, uh, he's, like, fine, and he just kind of walks away. There was a nice little thing that was added. Um, after 85 came out, there's some delay before 86, and 85 was heavily rewritten in that time, the second half anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you without spoilers, there was no Phoenix in the original version. Really? What yeah. happened? I, I think he just sat up there and thought about it. Um, I, like, this one, you know, the, the revised version came out between the releases of 85 and 86, so whenever those were on the, the release timeline. So it's not like this was, like, a years after release and it stuck in my head. Somebody could tell you, but I I just remember him having most of those thoughts, minus the Phoenix. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is that uh, when she's, she's going to go walk back to go to bed anyway, um, despite having to be around people again, and she hears a distant cawing cry, oh, yeah, and we yeah. can surmise that that's the phoenix yelling at Harry upstairs. Can only surmise the second time around. Yes. Uh, yeah, which, that was another one. I'm like, oh, I'm like, what is that? First yeah, which right puts now. us very smoothly into chapter uh, 85. 85, which is Harry <clears throat> has gone up to the top of Ravenclaw Tower to be alone with his thoughts and stare at the sky. Which, again, there's all kinds of cool sky viewing places in uh, Hogwarts. I'm that's still, true. once again, jealous. I know, and I sort of like the the, the, the tallest, uh, the highest point in Hogwarts is the top of the Ravenclaw Tower. It gives it kind of like a, that's the sort of science-y, astronomy kind of vibe to it. Yeah, I wonder what that means, like, traditionally for, like, a, for Ravenclaw wizards that aren't, that are not Harry Potter. Um, that, like, has, I, I guess they're just hard workers and, like, because Ravenclaw is very much like the, the science-y house, but they weren't until Harry shows up. So what did it mean to be Ravenclaw before? In just, canon? Yeah. No, no, no. no, no, no. In canon, no, no, I'm wondering, like, in this, little, in this little world, being a Ravenclaw before Harry Potter just meant that you were, what, analytical, but just not uh, very good at it? Yeah, the scholars. Scholars, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, if I had to put, like, a virtue to each house, I think the Ravenclaws were the scholars, the... Um, Slytherins were the house of ambition, and the Hufflepuffs were the house of industry and hard work, which is is a virtue. And yeah. Gryffindors were the virtue of courage and heroism. Yeah, I'm wondering like the disconnect on that. that like since they're the scholars, but like with apparently like a, just a huge learning disability the entire time. Why do you say that? <laughs> because well, they're they're supposed like that's their identity as being scholars, but none of them know any science. Well, they know they read. They read magic books. They don't read science books. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they've had, it's a like all the the other houses don't like have an inherent. You know, there's nothing about being a wizard that makes you inherently incapable of being either ambitious or courageous or loyal. But no, only knowing makes, magic doesn't make hard for you to be a good scholar. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder why Hogwarts had houses in the first place. Yeah, like you could just have all the kids have all the virtues and raise some well-rounded adults, but instead you raise a bunch of snobby nerds or a bunch of chest puffy people like a, and a bunch of you know, conniving dicks and a bunch of nice hard workers. You get one house that ends up well. <laughs> it's like a very, it's, it's a, uh, it's like astrology divided by three. There's right. four kinds of people in the world. And you get to fit into one of these squares. Yes. Perfect. 
So he gets off to Ravenclaw Tower, which has, again, this dope-ass, like, flat balcony thing to hang out on. And this is where he's doing all this awesome, like, self-reflection stuff, yeah. which uh, I'll let you drive here. But I, I like this long moment of introspection and the cool random, like, throwaway thought that he has kind of just to get himself back-centered onto the serious stuff he's thinking about, where he's thinking, like, how, you know, four light years might not be that far. Oh, yeah, like. Yeah. You know, saying it's unimaginable or infinite was just an easy way to ignore the number. Um, but like with magic, it's it's not that unthinkable of a distance. That makes you wonder, like, if you could just make the chain on a time turner bigger, could you wrap it around a spacecraft and use it every six hour, or every thirty hours or whatever, and get there that little bit faster? Um, you know, again, how fast do Porky's go? Apparition, Phoenix travel, all this cool shit makes distant stars seem pretty close. Yeah, and he starts. It starts out like thinking like back to it like a, a trip with his parents to australia and seeing some like natural history museum basically and um and that it was i can't remember it was like a curved it was some kind of hunting like a curved i can't even remember it was like a spear throwing something yeah um, one of the, or, no, I think you, you probably yeah. did recognize it if you saw it you yeah. could like you could throw a sharp stick and or a spear by swinging <clears> what looked kind of like a lacrosse stick yeah Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen that. But, yeah, and so he's, like, sort of struck by, like, oh, these people never invented the bow and arrow. Um, and, like, what that, <clears throat> like, how he processes that is just the thing, like, and he's think, I think he says it's, like, oh, it shows you, like, how non-obvious progress is that um, if your entire life and the life of all of the ancestors that you can think of um, going back has always just been about doing the same thing, then like learning new things and new ways to do things and discovering things just isn't a thought that anybody would have. Um, and so that sort of like lets him, and so, he, so first he sort of sees like looking back on that train of thought, which he had before, not in any kind of context around magic, just be just thinking like, Oh, how much has science advanced and from where we were and how little and how much more we still have yet to learn. Um, and then how he sort of like applies that thinking to magic. He's like, oh my God, we are like way at the beginning, like we're at the, the magic equivalent of caveman right now. So there's so much magic to be discovered if we just use the same approach. Um, and so then I think that's what leads him into thinking like, oh, you know what? Maybe like 20,000 light years isn't that big a deal if there's magic. Um, Which I, I love the whole chain of reasoning. Cause I mean, yeah. in addition to a couple of other factors, you know, like, uh, whatever industry that eliminated the need to, you know, make your own clothes and spend 16 hours a day tracking down lunch and dinner. Like once humanity took on as a virtue progress, it's amazing how fast we got to space. Yeah. Like we were, we were around for 200,000 years, basically did fuck all. And I know then it's got so to space like within weird, a century weird, or within a few like, centuries. Yeah. That humans from, yeah, I think, I, I think yeah, about 200,000 years was what I read that uh, for, we've been basically genetically identical for the last 200,000 years. So we've just been like masturbating for 190,000 years. And then someone's like, oh, a grain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like yeah, oh, industrialized farming. Oh, uh, the wheel. And oh, my father, uh, my father wrote down what time of year I ought to plant the crops. Well, and, you know, just like the like you said, all of your heroes and folklore comes from people who are more badass at doing the things that your society already does. Yeah. It, so it's it's not about like doing these things that your society never dreamed of. It, it's to me, it's a really inspiring long view. But yeah, and yeah. But even then, from that like from that long view, if you like, okay, we've been around for two hundred thousand years, 
um, and it's only been in the last 10 that we did anything like really even uh, it was just like like it's not even so much like oh your society doesn't think to do anything it's like oh as soon as we made a society then it enabled like all that if you because you so yeah any kind of like progress as a concept is only you know in the is a three-digit number of years old um but even that, like even if you are going to include like the entire ten thousand ish years of civilization like that's a blip like that's i can't math five percent of the human race um so it's like as soon as we turn the machine on we took off it's, and there was like the first hundred ninety thousand years of just not doing a goddamn thing yeah hunting and gathering and not doing much else um yeah anyway um i'll let you drive after i got that thought out so yeah so uh so first quick little quote that i saw just because it kind of like um drew on that whole like his dark side idea and that like that there are multiple harrys going on um he said at least his dark side hadn't asked anything of him in exchange for saving hermione maybe because his dark side wasn't an imaginary voice like hufflepuff Harry might imagine his Hufflepuff part as wanting different things from himself, but his dark side wasn't like that. His, quote, dark side, so far as Harry could tell, was a different way that Harry sometimes was. Right now, Harry wasn't angry, and trying to ask what dark Harry wanted was a phone ringing unanswered. The thought even seemed a little strange. Could you owe something to a different way you sometimes were? Um, so I just sort of thought, like, Harry's seeing this, like, like we're trying to... It's kind of almost like the... If I had thought, how were we going to call it this dark side thing? It's almost as like the opposite of what I might have thought. That he's just sort of like, oh, it's just another way I am. Like he's he doesn't um, call out his dark side as this other identity inside himself. Um, he's basically kind of saying like, oh no, it's me. It's just like me in a different mood. Um, but yeah, kind of like kind of anytime we we talk about either Harry's dark side or split souls or different parts of yourself, those always ping for me. Um, a lot of anime has that trope too where you know the the protagonist has like another version of themselves they can switch into when situations mm-hmm. are dire enough and at least one that i'm thinking of particularly Veroni kenshin um part of his growth arc is realizing that like i can call on this power without going dark mode mm-hmm. and that's uh maybe similar to what harry's talking about here maybe i'm stretching just because that's the uh, first thing that came to mind well he's kind and of like all Kenshin's of this dark side wasn't exactly Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Like, so, like all of this is in the context of him. Like, he's sort of running through the the morals around, like, basically, like, uh, when are you willing to do nasty shit for a good cause? Um, and so he's like tossing around all these thoughts in his head around, like, okay, what has Dumbledore done? I think we do get to the idea of like the of Dumbledore killing Narcissa as part of this, but um, he's just kind of like running through. He's kind of replaying in his head all of the things he has been willing to do and all the things he has thought that Dumbledore ought to be doing. Um, and he's just kind of like chewing on that back and forth um, around basically like, you know, what does it mean to be a hero? What do you, and, and what are you willing to do um, to do what, whatever you think, whatever your take on quote good is, what are you willing to do there? And that's where you kind of, then we kind of wander around in in several different little thoughts. And this is where it's like, it's going to be, kind of weird to tell there's no plot advancement he's, he's just sort of like thinking about things which which i kind of like but i'm not sure how like talkable about it it was but he goes he kind of retells a little story from 
World War II of, I think, was it, was it in, like, Sweden or something? It kind of doesn't matter. But it, like, starts out talking about, like, oh, the, we never thought that the Nazis would have gotten nukes, but then they almost did. And But, like, a little story about how, like, it basically came down to um, they there was a shipment of, what, the deuterium or something that was going to be needed for, for the nukes that the good guys were able to basically sabotage, sink, and kill everybody on board, um, which then prevented Nazis from getting nukes. But the kind of the... the moral punchline to that thing was that whoever did it at, at one point made a conscious decision to let an innocent man die not and not even necessarily directly in the cause of getting it but just that like if he that attempting to save the man would just sort of increase the risk of what they were trying to do um it just would draw attention like oh you know if we try to save this guy then the bad guys might figure out that that um that they're being you know that we're going to get them so it's just so a very, like, not even direct, like, I'm going to knowingly let this guy die just so I don't increase the risk that this won't work. Um, and I like, and kind of the point of all of that was that, was just kind of talking about, like, again, this, like, sort of, like, ethical algebra that people do and, like, how do they arrive at that? And that, like, okay, this one, ex- because whenever you invoke Nazis, you're going all the way to the wall with your metaphor, but that, like, oh, and because of this, the Nazis did not get nukes. Um, and so it was kind of like showing like, okay, here's, you know, a gray, ugly, you know, moral decision, but that was clearly worth it. Um, and, and it's it's sort of, I don't, I didn't read that one so much as like, like the specifics of how that particular ethical decision, you know, got made, but that it was more just Harry kind of chewing on, you know, what is it like for people to like weigh these things in their heads and come to these decisions, um, that and kind of like the overarching thing to all of this to me was it was the ambivalence Harry feels about all of it and what we see in a little bit with the scene with the phoenix is that and what I really liked about these is that we've gotten not just in these two chapters but the last several chapters for the last couple of weeks um, this sort of ambivalence uh, between Dumbledore and Harry and that they've they've gone back and forth like they've sort of taken opposite sides of the same argument at, at different points and we've never really gotten the sense that oh one of these is definitely the right way to think about it and we just need to win this argument like we keep this argument kind of keeps butting into each other they both they keep both taking both sides of it and we keep sort of coming into this very kind of ugly gray ambivalent area of like we don't really know what the right move is um and that's just so like and that's what we're left to just kind of sit in that that um, you know, Dumbledore trying to, you know, fight these wars has had to do terrible things and we're not sure if, it, if they were right. Harry sometimes wants to just, you know, rush in <clears throat> and, you know, flip the table over. And sometimes we think that's the right thing to do. Sometimes we don't. Um, and so that's kind of what Harry is chewing on through all of this is like, sort of the very unsatisfying way that like, he, he can't kind of clearly see like what's the right approach to this um and i think like for us it's sort of like and that's kind of like almost central to the hero thing is that you're just left there having to kind of figure out in the moment um what the right way to go is and there's kind of no clear indication that like okay this is the one right way to deal with these things yeah no i like that a lot and one of his kind of throwaway thoughts is that like there is a right way to do it but you can't because you're not you're not a comic book superhero yeah and so, like, Superman would have been able to, to manage all of these things. Um, you know, he, he would have stopped the Nazis from getting nukes and not let a single innocent die. But because Newt Hockelid and Dumbledore aren't Superman, yeah. they, they, they didn't have the, 
you know, didn't have the ability to do the ultimate right thing. They had to make constrained right decisions that involved downsides. And what I like about this is that, like, this is finally, like, admitting that, man, collateral damage, like, is a real thing that, that happens because the world is more complicated than my comic books. Yeah. And, and I, like, um, you know, side note, that's part of what was, you know, fun about, like, say, Age of Ultron. You know, lots of people died in Sokovia, but, like, they saved the world, but, you know, people died. And it's it's not like they had to deliberately sacrifice lives. They were, they were just collateral damage, but... Um, yeah, not, I guess not the best analogy. You know, if they had to throw some, like, meat shields at Ultron to stop him. <laughs> meat shields. Then yeah, I that think would have been a better the, analogy. The, um, the point that kind of keep coming back to, again, like, in these last several chapters is, uh, I keep thinking about it as like, just the idea of uncertainty. <clears throat> one of the, and then one of the things Harry says is, um, but even if you tried framing the question that way, asking what humanity's descendants would think, because he gets on this idea that, like, oh, if you know what enlightened people will think, then you should just skip ahead to the part where you think that. Um, asking what humanity's descendants would think, it still drew only on your own knowledge, not theirs. The answer still came from inside yourself, and it could still be mistaken. <clears throat> and I think that's like what Harry's been kind of um, grappling with for a lot of this is, and kind of what I was talking about before, that um, like a lot of the tools he has are applicable to okay, if, you know, if given conditions A, B, and C, what's the right thing to do? And that Harry keeps running into situations and, and Dumbledore also showing him the, the situations that Dumbledore has been in where you don't know what A, B, and C are, um, and, but you still have to try to, to think of something to do. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the uncomfortable place that he's been stuck in and what, like, where Harry doesn't know what the right thing to do is. Um, and he doesn't, I keep thinking of it as like, like there's no surface area for his rationality to, to latch onto, that he's got these tools that would work, but he doesn't have anything he can point them at. And, and, and this sort of feeling like, oh, but it's, you're supposed to be able to like, if I just, you know, wait, there'll be the right time where I can like employ these rational tools and be able to make like a logical informed decision about what the right or the wrong thing to do in this situation is. But he doesn't have time and he doesn't get that information and he's still stuck either having to make a choice or make a choice by virtue of not making a choice. Um, and that's sort of like the, the thing he's been struggling with. And the thing that like Dumbledore has been kind of like trying to tell him about is this kind of like operating in like a vacuum of information. Um, yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think it's, um, you know, just to caveat and defend the rationality community that, it, you know, it's, there's, uh, like Harry, for for by and large, running up to this point, he's been running from like, well, in this thought experiment, things run fine, and if they don't, I just handle it. Those are like his plans. Mm-hmm. Um, he's learning that the world's more complicated than that, which isn't to say that the tools for you know us real life people aren't equipped to handle it. It's that Harry is finding that the tools with his current proficiency, like this, this isn't enough. Um, you know, he, he's finding himself. Uh, I'm trying to find an analogy involving that weird spear throwing tool that he had, but I can't remember what it's called. You know, he, he's, he doesn't have the skill to make his, uh, to use his tools in a way that are actually like that solve these problems for him. And so, and you know, let's be real in, in the real world, you know, things happen fast. You got to make split decisions. Um, well, I think, yeah. And, and I think I mean, to me, that's the, the point of this has been like trying to like put a mature look at the thing and not, like try to pretend that 
you know, a rational approach to things is going to be the silver bullet that's going to solve the problem all the time. Like it's sort of showing like reality is ugly enough that sometimes you are just stuck with like, there's no tool to be, it's not like, Oh, this tool doesn't work. Like no tool will fucking work at this point. Um, and that's sort of like, like an entire, like a three dimensional, fully fleshed out. If you're going to like come up with something and, and call that rationality that you can't name a, a, viable life philosophy as rationality and leave out this gaping hole of, um, you know, here's the set of tools. And as long as you always have enough information, it'll be fine. It's kind of saying that, like, at least for me, it was like, it's that none of this was to be like, oh, and it's in, you know, rationality is invalid. It was that, you know, that this is the best way to approach it. And that is going to mean that sometimes there's just no right thing to do. And the like, that rationality isn't going to just like magically make their, um, you know, always be a best decision. Sometimes you just aren't going to fucking know and like not try to try to force it. And that, like, it feels like that's like the trap Harry has gotten into sometimes is it's easy to get the, and I'm reminded I'll catch shit for this, but his uh, sentient grass phase where he's like, no, Hermione, I can't listen to the problem you're having right now because grass might be alive right now, the way it's been for the last 10 million years. But right now I just occurred <laughs> to me um, that but like, and that's sort of like that tempting trap. It's like, oh, and he even was able to like throw some math at it. This like, there's trillions of blades of grass, and there's you know only billions of people, and blah blah blah. Like that enticement, like it feels like you are able to apply rationality to it, but really you are just in a complete vacuum of information. And there are things that can give you the illusion of applying rationality to it, but that's just you know deluding yourself. And that when those opportunities present themselves, that. Like, okay, yes, whenever we can, we should do this. But like, sort of like the, to me, like what this is coming across is like, yes, this is a mature, viable, you know, fully formed philosophy for how to deal with life. And part of that is admitting that it's not going to work all the time because nothing is going to work all the time and being able to sort of like maturely recognize that. And that's where, and that like, it's so, super not satisfying. Like then that's where like Harry's struggling with is there's no good answer. Um, and there's no good answer, not because he's not being smart enough about it or not because he's not being rational enough about it, but because there's just no good answer. Um, and so it's more like, like he's got to sit there and like keep his powder dry for the moment that he can bust out the rationality guns. Um, but in those other meantimes, it's just like, okay, well then you just do the best you can with what you've got. Um, and that, at least for me, like that's saying, and that's not at all inconsistent with, with like a rational approach. Um, it's just being, um, realistic about it, which, which is also very rationalist about it. Like, um, not trying to pretend it can do more than there's evidence that it can do. No, I, I think that that's a really fair way of, of phrasing it. Um, yeah, like certainly, you know, if I were to try and appease the, um, you know, I don't think I'm going to have to appease anybody. I think that was a really uh, fair way of putting it. I don't have much to add. I mean, at the very least, what you can try and do is imagine and prep for various situations. You know, so like the, the rational thing to do isn't wish, like when the house is on fire, wish you had a fire extinguisher. The rational thing to do is have a fire extinguisher handy, right? So like you, you try to be as prepared as possible. But yeah, when life throws you three curveballs at once, you only have one bat. Um, it's, you know, the... The, the technique, if there's time to wield anything at all, would be let's try and make the least shitty decision yeah. and then realize the next day, fuck, if I had done that, that might have actually solved all the problems perfectly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I by large, know, yeah. life, life is just making decisions under uncertainty and time pressure. 
And so if, if you're, if you're constrained by time and information, like there, you, you don't have the tools necessary to solve the problem perfectly. And that, that's perfectly, that's, that's, yeah. I think, uh, I, I don't think it's a, like a walk back concession to make. I think that's just the way the world is. Um, the goal is like when you are making long-term plans, what can you do best? Um, like that sort of thing yeah, when you can't like, sit down with like, pen and paper, go nuts. But yeah, when, when shit hits the wind and you've got to, you've got to act now, there's no time to bust out a pen and paper and crunch some numbers and think for five minutes. Like, oh no, the, the, the bus is coming right this second, right? Like the, the flames are getting hotter. There's no time to sit and think about it. Yeah. yeah it seems no, like, I, yeah. And the value is more like, like when you do have data to work with and time to use it, then don't make shitty just like, then use all those tools and, and and you know make better decisions um but i think it's, it is almost like it sort of violates kind of like the spirit of rationality to try to pretend that there is more data to work with than there is and it's easy to kind of like bullshit yourself into that like you can uh, because there are a trillion blades of grass and that's a number and you can do math with a number um and, yeah, and, no, and, I, and like, I like that, that natural urge to try because especially with like oh this is a tool that i can like influence my world with and it's a good tool and it works and i really really want to be able to use it even though there's nothing to use it on right now um and so it's like what like kind of an understandable urge that is um especially yeah. like like and if you got, if you have nothing to apply to like like what like shitty feeling of like powerlessness that is because it's like super unsatisfying to be like you know just shrug and go fuck it i don't know uh heads um, but sometimes, like, it's like, like that's all you can do, like heads. Yeah, and like I said, I, I think that that's a completely accurate way to put it. And you know, maybe if I was a little more awake, I'd find a better articulate way to put that. But <laughs> I, no, I, I don't find anything really contentious there. I do yeah. think that well, actually, like, part like of the goal like, is that it, you can do better than flip a coin when shit hits the wind. Um, but you can't. There are situations where you can't do much better. Um, you know, your house is on fire. You only have three arms, or you know, two arms. And you can't carry out the three most valuable things. You can carry two. And so it's like, maybe you would have realized, oh, shit, I could have made like a, whatever, you know, a, a, a wrap out of a towel and carried out all three important things. But that was 10 minutes ago. Now the house is burnt to a crisp. So I, I could, didn't get all three. You know, whatever it is, um, the, yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Like, Harry's coming to the realization that the world is complicated. Yeah. And... Uh, while the tools are valuable and far from useless, that they that there's just often not enough. Uh, you, you can't. You're constrained too much, right? Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah, like that's what moves it from like a moves it from wishful thinking to a viable philosophy is kind of just acknowledge you know meeting the world where it is. I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, if if this was sold. If this whole movement was sold as like this is you know follow these ten steps and your life will be perfect, then it would be obvious bullshit. You know, there's a million books with that title. Um, you know, if if there's any credulity to be gained from uh, people that you might otherwise trust to not be insane, you know, selling this stuff, you might at least trust that it's not snake oil. So if it sounds like snake oil, then you listen and you hear like, oh, okay, it's making reasonable promises. It's not promising to solve your life with you know six easy steps. Number two will blow your mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he I, I i don't have much else to add to that i think you you did a good job um, <laughs> rationalists hate this one trick yeah. time travel <laughs> uh, so yeah the world's messy and it's not always as clean as he wishes it could be 
So and the punchline this rolls up to like what what he's think like the key thing on his mind as he's mulling all this around is should I go up and nuke Azkaban? Um, right and, now that I'm making the decision here under like while I can think about it, yeah, and not doing it in the moment. You know, like he could have just done it the second it occurred to him in the wisdom comment. He probably said, no, I should probably think about this for a second first, unless I really don't have time to think, yeah. in which case I'll just do it anyway. But well, now that's the thing, thinking, like even with that time to think about it, I think that's sort of what's frustrating to him is it still does like he's still like operating in a, in a low information environment. So, yeah, he's got time to think about it, but he doesn't have enough to go on. He doesn't know what the right thing to do is. Uh, he doesn't know what the outcome of his actions would be. He doesn't know what all of the... Um, things that are going on are or what people's you know reactions would be um so he's just got these like you know these the, the do blow up azkaban don't blow up azkaban um and you know no real clear idea of you know what the right thing to do would be i think he my, my read is that he still thinks it's right to destroy azkaban like even if he hasn't thought of all yeah, like, the fallout yeah, right now know, or like, not right now basically yeah like the how yeah. and when yeah, well, and so that that's why that's how this all gets to build up to this awesome climax here. But like, you know, it there's no question that Azkaban should be knocked out. Like that's mm-hmm. not on it. He, what he's done thinking through the decision should Azkaban stick around. The question now is like should under I what circumstances right and when. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like what what you know, like if you see somebody stabbing people in the mall, you know, do you shoot them or do you, you know, think through the consequences like well do i really want to think about the core and you know the blah 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 it's like no you, you put them down you deal with the consequences later because that's an obvious evil you're stopping mm-hmm. and so that's probably a contrived example but then his his thinking here is like okay well i stand like a one in two chance of dying if i were to summon fox and to do it but you know back back when it was like this distant thought of like you know well i'll get i'll destroy azkaban as soon as i can and now he just realized earlier today with fox he's like oh as soon as I can is like right fucking now. Yeah, that's like his... and and that's the moment that summons a phoenix for him, and that's that's this big awesome moment. Yeah, and that would like his shift was that he was like, oh, you know, I've been thinking all this time. I need like basically grown ups to help me um, get to Azkaban and and blow shit up. Um, and then he's like, oh wait a minute, like Fox would just take me, and, and he's been able to sense that like Fox wants to, like um, has just been waiting for him to say yes, let's do it. Um, and I thought it was, and I was confused because I thought this was obviously well, there's only one Phoenix we've been seeing, so I thought this was Fox that showed up. But it was sort of like he's just kicking the idea around and hasn't. He's like, oh, and I could just say Fox, let's go, um, but it, it, that wasn't like an affirmative decision he had come to or a thought he had. He didn't, and he w- was thinking like, oh, I could just think it and Fox would hear and come. Um, but then he sees like, he and then he thinks just, it, and here comes yeah, a phoenix. It's very reasonable to assume that it was Fox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I had to read. It. I'm like, wait, that was or was not Fox? Um, but but yeah, so it was like even he didn't even have to like, he was only having to entertain it as a possibility for then like, for somebody to they dispatch the phoenix from Central, um, <laughs> show up and be like, okay, let's go new cask ban. Um, that like there's like an eagerness from like that, you know, I just I get kind of get the sense that there's just this sort of like force of goodness pool from which phoenixes are drawn and that it really really like it just sensed that harry was toying with you know doing the you know brave noble possibly foolish thing um and was like yes let's get he's thinking about it let's go up there and get him to do it um and but i really like so but his reactions i I really like even because you again you're not like fully uh agreeing one way that like i don't i didn't get the sense of like oh you definitely should or you definitely should not 
Um, but I liked like Harry's response, especially because Harry's response felt very, again, selfless um, and just kind of grounded. Um, but so he gets this kind of this like unspoken vibe from this Phoenix that shows up. That's basically like, come on, let's go. Um, and it's basically asking him to decide, is he going to do it? Um, and so what he's, what Harry says to the Phoenix is, but I, there's other people I also have to save other things I have to do. Um, and I liked it because it, it well, a, like he sounded a whole lot like Dumbledore, uh, in that, but that it wasn't, um, and it was sort of like, and I think like the impression people got with like what I was talking about with the bullies that like, it's, it's not this choice between like do nothing, uh, or do something. It's the how and the when, um, and that. Harry's not saying, no, we're not going to do it. He's just saying, we're not going to do it right now because that wouldn't, that's not, you know, the way to go about it. Um, and his timeline is even short. It's like, you know, even just like six, yeah, months, six months, let me train now. a couple more true, patro- two patro- true Patronus casters. And that's what I really and... liked about it. Yeah, there's there's too much else I have to do. Please come back later when I found others who can cast the true Patronus. And that was like my big, like, like my my big beef with the, with the bully episode was how unilateral it was uh, with Harry. And that like this, so that was, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't expecting this called out, but like, that's, I think a big part of like what made this feel very different is that, um, so Harry's not like backing out on it. He's just like, okay, we can't just go in like this. And that the big thing though, is like, basically I'm going to get friends to come along with me. And that like, that just sort of like humanizes the whole thing. And also it's just like a sanity check. Like, you know, if this is a good idea, then probably more than one, more than just you will think it's a good idea. Um, and just sort of like I, that, I think that, that, like that. I think that checks out. Yeah. I had an articulate way of putting it a second ago and it slipped, but it was something along the lines of like, you mentioned that this is the moment, you know, it's moments like this that feel humanizing for him and like those are the ones that land better. And it's the ones that involve him not intellectualizing by himself in his head, but reaching out and being part of a community. Yeah. And, you know, even if it's just him and a, and a couple of people, you know, he could train up, a you know, he could teach Hermione and he could teach Draco and then we'll go do it. And, you know, if it's like, A, they'll have to agree to do it, but then B, it'll also radically reduce the risk to his, his dying while doing it, which yeah. is his other concern. Like when he was in Azkaban and he was going, like his Patronus was going wild and he was, because he was thinking before about that woman and how he didn't, you know, blow up Azkaban to save her because he didn't know her name. He didn't know her favorite color. Yeah. And like... There are no doubt people that would have blown up Azkaban to save her, but he's like, no, I, it, like that, that's the thing is like it, it, it humanizes him when he like thinks of it on a personal level. And I, and I find that appealing. Like it's, you know, there's, it's, it's fun to watch the hero do the thing because that's what heroes do and that's the right thing to do and to hell with a party. But, you know, like all in, in my, uh, strong opinion, well, my, whatever, my one opinion for what it counts for, like good heroes operate with teams and the teams act a to help, you know, because they're all stronger as a unit, but also like they are checks with each other. And, uh, they, while working together, they can do things that individually they can't do, but they can also coordinate their decisions, not just their, their strengths. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So like his thought in Azkaban was, like while he's burning out, he was like, there was more I meant to do with my life than this. And it's like, that's, that's the hard decision to make. He's like, man, I wanted to do all this cool shit. Do I want to die doing this? Like, this is super important. This might be worth dying for, but there are other ambitions I had. And like, you know, 
I'm not sure where that falls in the rationality spectrum, and I don't particularly care. But like that—that's how that's how people work, and that's how I want them to work. Like, you know, I I could imagine, you know, being in a similar situation with a burning orphanage because that's the classic example. <laughs> and it's like, could I run back in and pull out two more orphans, or could I go on and live the rest of my life where like I'm planning on doing all this amazing life world saving shit? And I'm not because I'm lazy and I suck. But if I was doing life world life and world saving shit, um, it would be that would be a perfectly reasonable thought to have. And it's like, man, I was going to I was going to cure malaria. Do I run in and save two more orphans like it? That that was the decision he was facing. And that that's a that's the human way to think about it. You know, yeah, um, I like- it's I'm not saying he made the thing is like, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's not about so much about right and wrong and making the correct choice. It's just making the choice you made and understanding that it can be a, you know, the best decision might not be an unambiguously good one. Yeah. yeah. And Harry's been using like, <clears throat> not, I wouldn't say up till now, but in the, in the beginning, <clears throat> Harry's used that the, and even what he has like talked to himself as being like quote rational, but the, the very kind of, coldly logical part of himself and the, you know, flexing his brain at people, part of himself, he's used that as a way to hold himself apart from other people. Um, and I think what I lo- love about this is like, this is showing us like, that is not at all rationality, like that, that unilateralism um, and the, you know, the smugness, that is not rationality that like this, like forming teams with other people because you have collectively come to a rational decision that this is the good thing to do and doing that in a human way with empathy like all of that is consistent with rationality and that he's had this very quarrel fucked up um you know slash r slash i am very smart way of both (laughs) like interacting with the people around him and how he was using what he was you know calling rationality to himself as a way to just kind of like set himself apart and which was basically totally sabotaging himself but so now i like he's like getting he's getting this more mature look at it of like you know awareness of like the limits of it and, and you know how you have to deal with uncertainty and that um and the value in using it though to like basically like form teams um and the the the, i mean it's both humanizing but also just valuable like um the empathy tools of you know cooperating um are totally consistent with also the rationality stuff and that he's like they're not in conflict in with him anymore he's like well i mean he's starting to like put that together yeah and i agree they're they're not in conflict and that there's I mean, there's literal strength in numbers, and it comes from not not just you know raw strength where six of us can hit harder than one of us. It's that there's the the collective brain power of again. I, it sounds like I'm I'm frontal lobing it, but I'm what I'm getting at is that you know we, we can we can synergize and work together to accomplish goals and realize different aims that are are even better with a with a team than we can by ourselves. You know, um, yeah. by yourself, you might intellectually decide that the most important thing you could do is cure malaria, which is super important and will be awesome when it's done. Um, you know, with, with a team of people working on how do we make the world the best place ever, maybe you'll find the cure to immort- You know, maybe you'll just find immortality and, you know, make that your goal instead. And sure, malaria falls by the wayside for a decade while you're solving the, while you're solving the, the death problem. But in the end, you've accomplished a bigger goal. 
and that that's that's the sort of you know power in groups you get. So yeah. I, and I agree, it's it's it, there's I don't think there's a conflict there at all. Yeah. But you're right, Harry, having been the only smart person he's known his whole life, except for you know until he met Professor Quirrell and the handful of people at Hogwarts, he has all this time he's just been like alone in this box and yeah. now he's finally real it seems like he's realizing that there's he's he's on the road to realizing that there's uh wisdom in you know having a team yeah maybe i'm just hung up on the avengers but uh, <laughs> it's a good you it's know a good like and 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 it and the analogies work when i continue to force them i mean like you know captain america's badass captain america can't stop thanos and if Cap dies to, you know, save Bucky's life, well, we just lost the war with Thanos. Like, you're not sufficient to defeat Thanos, but you're necessary. And so we, I think we, we need you all around. Agree, though, that Hawkeye's pretty fucking useless. I mean, so my, 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 <laughs> I mean, yes, but my, my, my joke on Hawkeye is that that's why they lost Infinity War, because Hawkeye, he's not, he doesn't add a lot of punch, but he's the heart of the team. He's the heart. You know? So they lost in Infinity War because he wasn't anywhere to be found. They they need they needed their their you know their big beating heart around to to give them the spirit to to do it right. But alas, he was whatever barbecuing with his family and lost. So um, Harry's staring down the Phoenix, and he's you pulled up the quote. Uh, it felt like a tightening compulsion in Harry's chest, the desire to just do it and get it over with. He might die. But if he didn't die, he could feel clean again, have principles that were more than excuses for inaction. This was his life, his to spend, if he chose. He could do it any time he wanted, if he wasn't a good person. I know, that was a weird, uh, weird wrap-up to the paragraph. I think it was like, my, my read on it is, you know, if he wasn't a good person, he could do it whenever. But because he is, he like needs to do it now. Like, a good person doesn't put off saving people. But then he's he's realizing that like no I, then that's where he says there's I have so much else to do, and please come back later when I found others who can cast the true Patronus six months maybe, and then devastatingly the sphere of fire surrounding the phoenix just crackles and blazes and dissipate it gets Thanos to dust and no phoenix remained. The phoenix says fuck off nerd. I, I wonder, you know, if, if you, if I put an emotion in the Phoenix's head when it answers his, his summons for, I wish I had the power to do this. And it's like, you got it, man. Let's get there and fucking do it. And then he says, ah, not right now. I imagine there's just like a, you know. Oh, he's like, oh, mind. you fucking pussy. That's, that was the vibe I got. I don't, I don't sense judgment like that. I sense more just like a, an ambivalence from the Phoenix where it's just like, oh, Never mind then, or yeah, that's kind of like maybe how, di- maybe disappointment, but not condescension. You know, not not nothing like that. Yeah, no, it was more that like because the phoenix was so like okay, let's fucking do this, and so like like all like the phoenix is just like pure like enthusiasm towards doing the action. So it, like it's completely the 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 ambivalence is a useless emotion to the phoenix. <laughs> so it's like oh fine, okay, fine. Yeah, no, I, I like the clarification. But, um, so there's silence on the tower. Until he turns around, yells, and almost falls off, and Dumbledore is there. Sneaky Dumbledore. And so it was done. So it was done. Oh, yeah, Dumbledore is full again all for the rest of this chapter. And he and Fox are there, and he says, what are you doing here? And he's like, ah, well, you know, there was a magic creature coming around, and figured I should check in. 
And then uh, he says, I, I dared not speak. I knew. I knew that this choice above all, all, all of the choices must be yours. And this is where Harry's starting to panic. And he's like, oh, this was a bigger deal than I thought. Yeah. Maybe he's realizing that this was a choice, not like uh, a single, you know, not the choice. I, I think maybe it's it's dawning in him in his apprehension that this was a one-time offer. Yeah. And you know what? My whole uh, my whole spiel earlier about saying no to one-time offers uh, <laughs> makes, me bad, makes me a bad Phoenix candidate. But the thing is, I tried to buy the Phoenix first, maybe is how this yeah. works. So. And he didn't, uh, he didn't know it was a one-time offer. That's right, and the yeah, and Phoenix. the Phoenix didn't try to you know take away closing. So, yeah, <laughs> and if uh, if the Phoenix had said one time offer, Harry probably would have ran with it, which is fine. Um, so, and Dumbledore like says he, that like Harry yeah, can Harry can sense that like Fox is looking at him disappointedly, um, just indifferently. Yeah, indif- the Phoenix yeah. is not like, looking at him. Dumbledore says he's not interested in, interested in in you in quite that way anymore. He likes you, just not that way. Um, yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? Yeah, and yeah. but it's not. But it's that, like, yeah, it's not judgment. It's just sort of like, okay, uh, anything. He says, like, you know, he's still he's gonna still like you because he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't hang out with you if you were gonna, uh, if you weren't the kind of person that would have chosen that. But yeah, but there's like, like he sort of kind of turned a corner with, uh, with Phoenix kind. Um, but and then because also and then Harry, well, so first what was the. Dumbledore then talking to him about like, well, what does it mean to have a Phoenix and um, to have made that choice? He's, he talks about like how um, how he basically used a fox when he, during his fighting with um, uh, with Grindelwald, um, but that also like it's not necessarily like the end. Like it's it's not necessarily a bad thing that you that you turn on the Phoenix. Um, and so then he says, there never was a bird seen on Godric Gryffindor's shoulder. Though it is not written even in his secrets, I think he must have sent his phoenix away before he chose the red and gold for his colors. Perhaps the guilt of it urged him to greater lengths than he ever would have dared otherwise, or might have taught him humility and respect for human frailty and failure. The wizard bowed his head. I truly do not know if your choice was wise. I truly do not know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing. If I knew Harry, I would have spoken, but I... Dumbledore's voice broke then. I'm nothing but a foolish young boy who has become a foolish old man, and I have no wisdom. It's um, a cool line. Um, it's a great line. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's like and kind of like both acknowledging that, like you know, there's just there is no right answer here. Um, we don't know, and so maybe. And but what I thought was sort of like like heartbreaking, but also kind of cool at the same time is, as so Harry hears that and he's like, okay, nobody's like saying you definitely. Sh- should have done what you did and that as because then Dumbledore tells him that um, the only reason he was able to fight Grindelwald was because Fox was there basically to keep him alive Um, and that like clicks for Harry he's like oh fuck that's what they do for you then I probably totally could have taken out Azkaban if I had chosen to go, go with the Phoenix and at that point then Harry like pretty like unambiguously regrets the decision he made and very much uh, like it. So he shouts after for the Phoenix to come back kind of shouting at nothing, but um, that is like, it was what's sad and kind of cool at the same time. Like he very, like then he's not at all indecisive that he's like, Oh, I have made the wrong decision and he wants to take it back. Um, but I sort of like, like even though like he's hit, hit that like moment of decisiveness, but it kind of just calls back to like the, the stuck place he was in. Uh, with it. Yeah. 
No, I, I like it. Love it. I don't have much else to add. Um, I This is one of the more like moving chapters. Like yeah. you asked, what happens in 85 before that? I'm sure the old version exists somewhere. Um, it, but it definitely doesn't hit this hard. I think yeah. it is just him doing a lot of the, you know, Superman reflecting and stuff on the roof and doesn't this end in fortress this fortress of solitude. This, yeah. <laughs> but doesn't, it doesn't end in this, this terrible traumatic climax of, uh, yeah. Well, and it wouldn't have had um, this cause I mean, cause there's a big payoff for this is like a, you know, real practical matter of, Oh, you would have had like, it, it alters the decision. It's like, Oh no, this would have worked if you had chosen one way. So it like puts a lot more, it takes away a lot of the uncertainty around the outcome. Although, I, and I think it's sort of the point, like it's not like when you're operating in a low information environment, it's not that there isn't information to be had, it's that you don't have it. Um, and so I kind of like how that calls back like, okay, and I, I don't know that we know, know that, but um, like we're seeing that like, okay, now there maybe really was a definitely right choice to make and he didn't make it. Um, but he didn't have enough information to go on. So, um, you know, he, he did what he had with what he had at the moment. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, and in clarity, like it, it's not clear that he made the wrong decision or not. Dumbledore yeah. says if he had known, he would have spoken up and he describes that three of his students have had Phoenix has come and, uh, one sent hers away and one was the cousin of Lavender Brown, apparently. Uh, yeah. He didn't. He didn't return and save none of those he meant to save, and so like, it seems like it ups your chances, but it's not guaranteed victory. Yeah. Like so, maybe having a phoenix would have moved his odds from fifty percent, if that's Harry's guess, to eighty percent, which is you know much better betting odds. Um, maybe you know maybe even ninety five, and John just got unlucky. But the point is, is that it's not like it, it would have guaranteed him victory, but it would have made it much more plausible. Well, yeah, and it's definitely enough that Harry has decided that, like, had he known that, he definitely would have chosen differently. Absolutely. Um, and so that's the thing, is he wasn't willing to flip a coin, but he might have been re- willing to roll a D20, you know? And um, unless he rolls on that one, then he comes back. Those are, those, because, like, his reason for not going wasn't because he didn't want to, wasn't because he had any uncertainty about destroying Azkaban being the wrong thing. It was because I, I don't want to die doing this if I can do it in six months. And yes, every second of Azkaban is a horror that needs to be stopped, but give me six months, and then since I probably won't die if I do it later, then I'll do it then. I'll take a risk, just not this big of a risk. And when he learned that this turned out not to be that big of a risk, if he had a phoenix, then that's that's where it broke him, and he, he goes screaming back at the rooftop. Yeah. His voice his, his voice cracked, rising to a shriek. Um, he, you know, clearly regrets... Uh, he uh, that like you said decisions under what, what did you say i i always keep saying decisions under uncertainty but uh, um low when he's, when he's constr- vacuum of information or a, lo- a low information environment right in his low information environment he was working with wrong numbers he didn't know you know how much the phoenix would improve his chances and uh yeah i like that it's, it's very like, sad. like let's you see that like i mean yeah even in most situations there is the decision that is the right the, the correct decision um but just the like the one that would have had the best outcome, which is like ultimately just you know if you had called the coin toss correctly, um, but that doesn't really inform like the the process that went into the decision he made. Even when he comes out having made the incorrect one, it doesn't it doesn't mean that the process he went through to get there was flawed. And we we also don't we don't know that like that 
even had it gone the other way that like did he make the right call you know we don't know that one way or the other is right um and i sort of like like knowing and we don't know like fully knowing that the phoenix would have helped him doesn't like definitely decide it but it certainly pushes it in one direction um but even like knowing that doesn't change you know uh, doesn't necessarily mean that like his decision making process leading up to that was the wrong one right I mean, yeah, that's the thing is you can make the you can make the right decision and then learn the information was bad. Um, you know, anyone who bought Bitcoin in late December of 2017 or 18 knows that, uh, you know, they, they bought in while it was climbing and then it plummeted and it's never gotten back to where it was that, you know, that week. So, um, you know, it you can make a, the best decision and still just then only afterwards realize that the information you had was incomplete. I guess the other important thing here, too, that's. The extra devastating uh, nail on the coffin is that the phoenix comes but once, yeah. and he'll never get another shot. Not necessarily he can you know he can still stop Azkaban somehow maybe, but he'll never have a phoenix to yeah. you know summon and help him. So that's depressing and fun. Moving on to more depressing and fun stuff, we've got the final aftermath where, although there's a nice little beat in her in so Sibyl Trelawney wakes up with a gasp of horror and an unvoiced scream on her lips and. Uh, she could not understand what she had seen. She could not understand what she had seen. And I liked how you the grim. I'll let you say it. Otherwise, my robot will respond. <laughs> See, I don't have one, so that's okay. Yes, and she says, she asks Alexa what time it is. And Alexa's like, <laughs> what, what does she actually say? She says, babe, but being magical, like she's like, go back to bed. Yeah, so it's around 11, at, around 11 at night. Around Thanks, 11. robot. I wanted the time, not, not the approximate time, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> it says around 11 at night, go back to sleep. And then the happy beat in this is that there's magic to just clean up the sweat and pillow and go right back to bed. Uh-huh. Like in, in real life, you'd wake up in a flop sweat. You've got to like get up for an hour and let the bed dry off, which is annoying. So change your shoes, go take a shower. It's no good. Yeah. And then in the Forbidden Forest, a centaur awoken by nameless apprehension ceased scanning the night sky, having found only questions and no answers. And with the folding of his many legs, Firenze went back to sleep. I thought that was a strange man's many legs. It's four. I mean, it's not a, it's not an in, it's not an indistinct number of legs. We haven't seen centaurs in this. Maybe they've got an indistinct number of legs. They get, yeah, they get, you know, the ebb and flow. They've, they've got between four and seven legs most of the time. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. Time of day, yeah. relative humidity. <laughs> what year? What, 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 yep. wind. <laughs> Is it an odd-numbered year? Because that matters. Um, <laughs> it's a six-leg day. Similar thing happens in Asia and... Uh, Old lady yeah, tells any, her great, were there great significant grandson that she's all right. Huh? Were, were these references to anything, or were they random? I, mean, I think they're, I, they're, I, I didn't put in the, what I'm sure would have been tremendous amount of work to check for every reference to everything before we started <laughs> this, pro, this project. Um, is Fan Tong or Asia a thing? I mean, you know, in Asia, in Asia's a, not a story, thing. a Still thing. Trying maybe. to make Asia a thing. Um, you know, that, that's... That'll be for the fans to, to muddle out somewhere. But she tells her great-great-grandson that she's fine. It's only been a nightmare and she went back to sleep, which indicates how old, you know, wizards get, that her great-great-grandson yeah. is old enough to ask her, are you okay? So, um, anyway. Fantong is from Muggleborns Kung Fu received. Panda. What was that? Fantong is from Kung Fu Panda. Oh, that's hilarious. I wonder, maybe they, I, I wonder if that's an original name there or not. But this, this may have come out before Kung, Kung Fu Panda, but... 
Um, in any case, uh, I was trying to see if Kung Fu Panda, or if if Eliezer took it from Kung Fu Panda, or if they both drew from another fan tong. But that doesn't really matter because. In a land where Muggleborns receives no letters of any kind, a girl child too young to have a name of her own was rocked in the arms of her annoyed but loving mother until she stopped crying and went back to sleep. None of them slept well. So as you put it, Firenze Fantong, and other ran- Fantong Trelawney. means rice bucket. Huh? Fantong means rice bucket. Oh, well, that explains it. There you go. Um, <laughs> Clears it right up. Anyway, as you put it, the the thrust of the final aftermath here, these, these seers having bad nights, is that they sensed a great disturbance in the forest. The forest. <laughs> like a million muggles cried out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That was yeah, that. man. Well, I know what we have to wrap up on here. One is that next week we are doing the retro, and the week after we'll be doing chapter 86. So you can read 86 whenever you want. I don't know if we want to cover it in retro territory or not. Let's not. Um, let's not. So we'll do through 85, and then we'll do 86 afterwards. Uh, so that in two weeks we'll come back for 86 also don't forget the fan art contest um, if you scroll through the Doof discord there are now pictures of my face and you can google John Malkovich's face and <laughs> a, a Heisen beard on it um, other than that I think that's it for our notes and everything else I wanted to cover so I think that's a wrap man we're good oh, record time yeah <laughs> wait almost no, yeah really. we pushed past three hour mark anyway it's been a couple weeks since we had one of those True. We were due. Was, we were due. Lo- you guys were all due for a three-hour episode. Wahaha. Um, anyway, that's that. I appreciate everyone listening. If you guys appreciate uh, having stuff to listen to and want to support the show, you can go to doofmedia.com and uh, click on the Patreon link there. Do check out the other stuff. I swear to God, this is not the best thing on the network, so check out everything <laughs> else. And uh, Seriously, if you're and I say this over and over, and I'll try to stop sounding like a broken record, but maybe, I, you know, broken records aren't all that bad if they've got a good thing to say, which is that, uh, you know, do check out the other content on there. It's very much worth listening to. And I, you know, I enjoy it. You're doing yourself a disservice if this is the only doof show you're listening to. So um, there was a great one just last week with uh, Matt and Scott and uh, Matt's brother Daniel on the Chronicles of Riddick on the Doofcast. Nice. Which, uh, you know, depending on who you ask and when you ask them at what period in their life is a not the best movie ever, but it was a hilarious and fun discussion. <laughs> so, um, like, it, you know, it doesn't matter if the thing they're talking about is the best thing ever. Listening to them talking about it is the best thing ever. So enjoy all that stuff and do check out the fan art contest. The submissions end on August 31st, which is now creeping up because we've entered August. So get those arts in and we will put oh, up the, the voting... Uh, starting the day after the final entry comes in. So we will see you guys next week for the retro with our friends Daniel and Justin. Bye, everybody. See you next week.